0: Chapter 11. Beckett. The classroom reeks of pencil lead, chalk dust, and old plastic. I can tell the prof did his best to mask the must with a spritz of Lysol. I take a seat in the back, gambling on a hope that he won't call me during today's lecture. Political science seems like an oxymoron, especially since people with political power justify their actions with science, especially of the junk variety, but I digress. Classmates file in. I earn a couple of disappointed stares from fellow slackers who obviously wanted my seat. A blonde with her hair tied back in a bun fires a head nod my way. Her black long-sleeve hoodie reads, Mises forever. I mouth the words, Me too. And she grins as she plants herself next to me. I flip my iPad open and key in my code to unlock it. Professor What's-His-Nuts begins his lecture and I'm so gonna fail this class. His bassy, slurry voice, an unintelligible one, reminds me of how hard it will be to understand him. The words polling and data spill out of his mouth and I've got more important things to do, like plan something special for Mr. Griffin. The man responsible for my dad's death will get what he deserves. We all do, actually. I will ruin his Christmas and every single one after that in such a way that what he did to me and all those kids in 2010 will seem like Christmas story time at the public library. I will channel the energy of every mall Santa who's ever been pissed on. Every kid who's ever got a lump of coal in their stocking. Every guy who's ever spent three months salary on an engagement ring and got denied. All of this energy will get blended into holiday alchemy and rain down upon him with an experience more painful than a Hallmark movie marathon. Professor What's-His-Nuts continues his lesson about samples and sources. I feel his eyes staring at me and look up from my iPad. We hold a steady gaze until I nod in agreement with whatever the hell he's talking about. Profs like that shit. Running his fingers through his greasy, peppered gray hair, he calls on someone to answer a question about the lesson I'm blowing off. I could have skipped this class, but the blowback from mom isn't worth it. Life 360 showed you at the gym instead of school. Ugh. So here I sit, googling everything I can about Lex, learning the ins and outs. Not his bio, or the generic origin story. I need the meat, like, eight pages deep into my search. And lo and behold, look what we have here. Ellis Griffin, his wife. Lex definitely has a type. Based on all the pics with women on the internet, founder of Mama Bear Marketing, her bio reads, Mompreneur, and Hashtag Work Hard, Play Harder. We'll play alright. I scan her Facebook business page. The first time I've seen a Facebook page in who knows how long. She likes margaritas, especially the ones they serve at Ninfa's. But only the OG one on navigation. What self-respecting grown-ass woman even says OG? The same one I can finagle a rendezvous with, of course. She has a tattoo because she's, quote, not your average mom, end quote. It's an infinity sign on the inside of her wrist. How original. The more I see, the easier my mission gets. I keep scrolling, shifting my attention to Professor What's-His-Nut so he thinks I give two shits about the importance of a random sample. Another margarita pic and this woman loves booze so much, her timeline gives me a buzz and loosens my inhibitions. There's also a pick of her feet and a pair of black heels with red soles propped up on her desk with the hashtag Mom Boss Monday. More margarita picks, and I suspect her liver despises her more than I despise Lex. Professor What's His Nuts' voice grows louder and closer. The breathing is heavy, almost wheezy. He could use a visit to the gym. I separate my eyes from the pic of Ellis leaning on a conference room table, hashtag MILF goals. The prof and I trade stares. I smile and nod. He turns away and continues his spiel about the relevance of polls, of their relationship to ensuring our elected leaders have efficient data. The blonde next to me scoffs. You mean, elected tyrants? A woman after my heart. More my type than this lush of a tryhard, this Ellis. I should want her, not the tattooed mom boss with an affinity for excessive amounts of booze and expensive shoes. The blonde's comment triggers a collective giggle from the class. She flashes a smile at me and I should want to focus my efforts on her. I'm getting a number. Maybe an Instagram account so I can slide into her DMs. Possibly more. But I must remain focused on my task at hand. The long game. And the decimation of Lex Griffin. The blonde can be my reward. Ellis can be the leafy green salad. Good for me and my well-being. This blonde next to me? She'll be my dessert. My Christmas cake, sprinkled with sugar and spice and gumdrops and hypoglycemic shock. Okay, okay, says the professor. That's enough for today. My classmates make a beeline for the door, the way cockroaches scatter when you turn the lights on in a filthy house. But I stay. Surveying my new favorite mom boss's Facebook account makes me like Facebook again. More pics of margaritas, more high heels. Does this lady ever get anything done? Then, a picture of crossed legs with an appointment book placed strategically on one thigh in front of a fireplace. The caption is a quote by Rumi. A real doozy. Set your life on fire. Seek those who fan your flames. Hashtag holiday work. Hashtag mom boss. Hashtag the work is never done. Oh, Miss Griffin. I think I'd rather set Lex's life on fire and we'll fan the flames together. See you at Nymphas. Chapter 12. Lex. Piper grips the sleeve of my shirt. Two taps of my iPhone and I place it face down on top of the porch. Craning my neck to the side, I ignore her curiosity. She ignores my ignoring. Daddy, who are you talking to? Your future stepmother is what I want to say, but I don't. I was just thinking about a movie I saw a few days ago. Piper puckers her lips and squints her eyes. She claws at my face, this spunky little firecracker, and plants a kiss on my forehead. Daddy? Yes, Piper Bear? I wonder what kinds of movies Santa Claus watches. Hopefully better movies than your mom makes me watch. Definitely Home Alone. She giggles. His mommy and daddy left him all by himself. I drop my mouth open and widen my eyes as much as possible. I gasp and I grab her shoulders. Kevin! She roars so hard with laughter, she snorts and a snot rocket lands on my cheek. We quiet down. I lift a finger and wipe it down from my face. Exaggerating a frown with flared nostrils, I deepen my voice. Do you know what happens to little girls who blow boogers on their daddy? Piper laughs. She takes a pigtail in each hand and pulls them over her eyes. I wriggle a finger between her face and her pigtails. Do you? Her body quakes as she laughs. I lift her up and nibble on her tummy. Placing her down on the landing of the porch, I launch my arm into the air and wiggle my fingers. My pretend claw chases her through the yard. We circle one another, laughter swimming in and out of my ears, and this is how I want her to remember me when I'm gone. You cannot escape the Roboclaw Master Blaster 5000. Piper laughs as I scoop her up. She flings her arms to the side and starts flapping. Then I'll fly away so he can't get me. I caw. She chortles. I lower her in front of me. My phone chimes and I don't want to have to choose between Natasha and Roboclaw Master Blaster 5000. My arm extends with robotic movement. The only way to escape Roboclaw is to face him. Piper's face stiffens with concentration. And? I pause to twitch my fingers. Destroy him. My phone chimes again as Piper Karate chops my arm. Lowering my voice, I reply to her attack. Your chop is no match for Roboclaw. She interrupts with another chop and I'm no softy, but that one kind of hurt. I will destroy you, Roboclaw. Another chime of the phone and I fish it out of my pants as Piper thrashes at my arms and chest. She catches my wrist and my phone tumbles to the ground. You're no match for Piper Bear 10,000. The cathunk of tires in the driveway puts an end to the game. Mommy! Piper sprints to Ellis. Give Mommy some space, Piper, I hear from a distance as she gets out of her car. She pulls her sunglasses down and greets me with a glare. Par for the course these days. My phone has chimed non-stop for the past five minutes, and the only thing that'll make it stop is checking it. But I don't. I pick it up from the grass, refusing to lose it for the 17th time in a week. I heard you got in trouble, little girl, chastises Ellis. Stanley's in bigger trouble because he doesn't believe in Santa, replies Piper with crossed arms and a pouty face. Ellis and I exchange looks. She raises a palm to the air as if I'm oblivious to the situation. Piper wags a finger in the air. But I set him straight. He got to meet Dasher. She stops and kisses her left fist. And Blitzen, she says, and kisses her right fist. I clear my throat to keep from laughing. Ellis knows the move and shakes her head. She works 80-hour weeks, and I love seeing her try to parent our daughter out of trouble. Ellis tells Piper that the real Dasher and Blitzen will see to it that Santa skips her house this year. She gets into another fight. She condemns our little Santa crusader to one week without bicycle and TV privileges. If she knew anything about Piper, she'd know that Piper hasn't watched TV in weeks and said riding her bike is boring. That's okay. I have my Santa books. My phone chimes again and I can't resist. I press the home button and there in all her glory is Natasha. Again. The text reads, When are you coming over so we can finish what I started? A pulse of energy shoots up my body. Something I haven't felt since Ellis and I dated in college. I should want what sits before me, Ellis, with Piper sitting on the hood of her car. But I can't help wanting Natasha. And Daddy will make sure you don't punch any more friends, says Ellis, craning her head back with her thinly trimmed eyebrows arched up. I will. Now, Piper, scolds Ellis. Please behave yourself. Mommy has to go to an important meeting and I won't be back until after bedtime. Piper's pigtails bounce in defiance. But you always have important meetings, and you're always home after bedtime. My phone chimes again, and Ellis's meeting is about to get in the way of my next meeting with Natasha. Daddy, who is it? Is it the girl you said you need? Chapter 13. Beckett. Crowded restaurants suck. But as Lex told me and Mom this morning, parental duty calls. And by the end of the night, I'll have Ellis Griffin calling me daddy. Because most people who share every fucking detail about their lives on social media, and because Ellis falls into that group, I find myself at the original Nymphas on Navigation. By the looks of it, everyone and their mom wants a piece of some Taco Tuesday action at this joint. The mural with J.J. Watt and James Harden on it makes me sad, but not nearly as sad as the slurring woman next to me at the bar. Her tears cause the makeup to run down her face. She's a sad panda. Teetering and tottering with her strappy shoes in one hand and a half-consumed margarita in the other. The train wreck unfolding next to me occupies my attention so much, some douche in an ugly Christmas sweater taps my shoulder. How ironic that the must-have holiday clothing item is based on something... ugly. This bro with a high and tight haircut and a mustache that looks a little too much like a certain German from last century. He prods my shoulder with a finger I should snap off his hand and shove down his throat. You gonna order a drink or not? You can't just sit here, dude. Before I can answer, Drunk Margarita Chick swerves into him, spilling what's left of her sweet nectar that is the Nympharita. She apologizes as she drops her shoes and claws at his tie. The bartender approaches before the mustachioed broke and have him kick me out for a delay in ordering. Nodding my head in Drunk Margarita Chick's direction, I say, No more drinks for either of them. The bartender tips the brim of his Houston gambler's cap. Houstonians love their defunct sports franchises. I'll have a Mexican mule. Mariachis begin to play and drunk Margarita Chick has glued herself to the khaki-pants tipster. The two sway, cheek to cheek. His elbow pierces my back and he follows it up with a drunken shove. If he weren't so plastered, I'd strap his tie around his neck, yank him outside, and show him how we get down in Segundo Barrio. Excuse me, he slurs. Drunk margarita chick stumbles and catches herself on my shoulder. The booze on her breath is so strong, I worry about contact intoxication. Smells like someone can't handle their name for Rita, says a voice to the other side of me. Spanish butterfly coming right up, says the bartender. Glad to see you again, Miss G. The voice, raspy but powerful, tells the bartender to call her Ellis. Ellis G. G as in Griffin standing next to me is a woman's woman the kind of woman that drunk margarita chick could only daydream about being she's got soul-splitting almond brown eyes and hair tied up in a bun held together by a shiny jeweled barrette for a nanosecond the desire to rat out Lex floods my mind but a tsunami of desire washes it out. Drunk Margarita Chick falls into me again, and I want to call Alcoholics Anonymous, where counselors will command her to stay in rehab. I focus on the tequila bottles on the back of the bar. Rumi once said to set your life on fire, but I'm pretty sure he meant it in a metaphorical sense, am I right? Raising my Mexican mule, I turn to Ellis and take a sip. I turn back to the bar. We make eye contact off the reflection of the mirror. The look on Ellis's face. It's the same look my mom has when she looks at Lex. And just like that, I'm in. Rumi, she says. The crowd and the mariachis are loud. The trumpet wails like a depressed elephant who somebody gave ten zannies. I pretend the crowd is too loud, and I ignore her. I don't remember the last time someone mentioned Rumi. She says a little louder, as if to make sure I heard her this time. Sounds like you need to find different people to fan your flames. A grin spreads across her face and I want to drown myself in the sweet caramel pool of her eyes. She raises her drink for a sip. The area below her neck flushes red, camouflaging the MILF freckles mapped all over her upper chest. The look on her face tells me Lex ain't hitting it right. Forgive me for making assumptions, but you don't look like the roomy type. I'm not but thanks to her husband's podcast, I can expand my philosophical horizon beyond whatever Prozac-laced emo band is currently trending on Spotify. This one guy on Lex's show, he was some sort of self-help expert. Some recovered drug addict who turned himself around after he nearly died of an overdose. He was the one who introduced me to Rumi. Meh. I sip my drink and I shrug. Dead guys from hundreds of years ago seem to know more than Che Guevara worshiping punk rockers. Her eyes remain locked on mine. If she doesn't blink soon, I might scrap my plans for Lex and run for my life. But I must remain focused. A friend of mine once told me, people who make prolonged moments of eye contact are either in love or psychopaths. I want neither of the two. Drunk margarita chick bumps an elbow into my back. The force jostles me into my target. Thank God for rookies who can't handle their liquor and thank God for the OG ninfas. My drink collides with Ellis's. Her hand catches my shoulder. A draft of her perfume floats into my nose as I bump into her. Dolce & Gabbana light blue. Subtle, yet not overbearing. Detecting perfume scents is not something I'm particularly good at, but an ex of mine wore it often. It reminds me of her. Dolce & Gabbana light blue, I say as Ellis repositions herself. She purses her lips takes another sip of her drink with one hand. She flags down the bartender with the other. "Coming right up, Mrs. G," shouts the bartender with a wink as he adjusts his ball cap. "Now how do you know that?" she asks. I close my eyes and sniff the air. An intoxicating blend of fajitas and Ellis's perfume. Drunk Margarita chick swoons over the mariachis and belts out the drunkest grito I've ever heard. "Ay!" She shouts. It interrupts my moment with Ellis, and I wouldn't be mad if a cop swooped in and escorted this inebriated nuisance out of the restaurant and out of my way. Her flailing arms splatter drips of H Town's legendary margs about. Ellis rolls her eyes. I lean in. Ellis scoots closer, and this ain't the kind of behavior I'd expect from a married woman. The warmth of her breath tickles my ear. Her hand slides down my arm as I take another sip. I'm not the smartest person in the room, but my mission seems to have gotten easier. Like, way easier. Chapter 14. Lex. A late night for Ellis means the girls and I can eat whatever we want and pay the price the following morning. The price usually consists of a lecture about the dangers of eating too many carbs and how Daddy's no spring chicken, so we should really watch what we put in his belly. And then Ellis circles a hand over her stomach. Avery, Piper, and I sit around our extra-large pizza doused with extra cheese and pepperoni. So, how was school? I ask Avery. She sits her elbow on the table and slams her chin down on the heel of her palm. Says it bored her just like every other class she's ever taken since forever ago. Shame, I say. She rolls her eyes. Such a shame. With a mouthful of food, Piper asks, Did you know that George Washington never really chopped down a cherry tree? I shake my head and point to my mouth. Avery turns to Piper and wipes a thumb down the side of her face and says, You sound and look like an ogre when you talk with your mouth full." You're an ogre, replies Piper. My phone chimes, but I focus on dinner. As I sink my teeth into my slice of pizza, Piper snarls at Avery, opens her mouth and roars. With a crinkled face, Avery says, Keep it up, Piper Bear, or else Santa's gonna send you to boarding school so you'll learn some manners. Another chime of my smartphone, and I can already tell it's Natasha. But parental duty calls. And Rudy, too. The four-legged putz props his front paws on my lap to try and score whatever scrap he can get. Rudy, Santa won't bring you any greenies if you don't stop jumping on Daddy's lap. Lectures Piper with her mouth still full of masticated cheese, pizza crust, and pepperoni. Avery circles a straw in her glass of tea and smirks. She raises her drink and says, No greenies for Rudy and Piper gets to go to boarding school. Sounds like my kind of Christmas. Avery Jean, I say, and my phone chimes again. Alice, I wish I could ignore her, but I don't. I can't. It's mommy, I say to Piper with a mouthful of food, and now I'm a hypocrite. Annoyed by my hypocrisy, Piper asks, Why do you get to talk like an ogre? Ellis's message reads, Coming home after ten. Don't feed the girls garbage. Too late for that. I reply with a thumbs up. Another message from Ellis, and I wish I could just open the ones from Natasha. And what the hell did Piper mean when she asked you about some girl you said you needed? Rudy yaps for a piece of pizza. I oblige him with a sliver of crust to get him off my case. Piper stabs my forearm. Her jagged fingernails are so dirty, I might need a tetanus shot. What did Mommy say? Avery interjects before I can answer. Let me guess, she'll be home after ten and she doesn't want you feeding us garbage. I nod. My phone chimes again. Is it the girl you said you need? asks Piper. Avery glares at Piper. Then at me. I look down at Rudy. Yes, it is, I say. Uh, come again? Says Avery. I wolf down a large bit of pizza, holding up a hand. I've been waiting to book this guest for my podcast for more than two months and I finally got her. Piper smiles at Avery. Then at me, and then at Rudy. Santa already brought daddy's Christmas present. She's right about that. Chapter 15. Beckett. Mom has a knack for falling asleep before turning off all the lights. And she almost always crashes on the couch with the TV on full blast with one of two channels. The Hallmark Channel or Game Show Network. Golden Girls or Family Feud. Steve Harvey is the greatest host in the history of the show, don't you think? Ten years ago, she would have chastised me for lighting up the whole damn city. Tonight, not a trace of her. Just Blanche bragging to her posse of retired old bats about her latest conquest. Whereas she would have docked me a nickel per light as a little kid, the house lights beam down on me as I enter. But no sign of her. Just Blanche in her stupid laughing track. I plop myself down on the couch and kick my feet on the coffee table. My heel lands next to a stack of Mom's books. One about moving cheese and the other by some guru I've heard one of Lex's guests talk about. Some guy named Tony Robbins. I revel in the moment because Mom can't say anything about my feet on her overpriced coffee table. That and my feet throb from all the walking across campus and standing at the crowded bar at Ninfa's next to Ellis and drunk margarita chick. I hoist my ass in the air and shove a couple fingers in my back pocket. They fight with the crinkly piece of stock paper I shoved in there. Pulling it out, I gaze at the piece of creased business card. White with pink curls along the edge and the phrase, Mom's already worked hard. Let this mom put in the extra hours for you. A photo of a cross-armed Ellis holds my eyes in a stoic stare. In the background... Blanche gloats about the gluteus maximus of her 30 years younger boyfriend, and I can already picture myself as the topic in a similar conversation. Only with River Oaks moms in their 40s cackling over mimosas. Ellis continues to look at me from inside the creased business card. The phone number trolls me to pick up my phone and dial. The email address yearns for a message from me, complete with a screen grab of Lex's exchange with my mom, but I resist. A bomb squad doesn't attack a bomb threat by bombing it. No. The squad dismantles it. I must do the same. With meticulous precision, I will dismantle everything in Lex's life. Only difference between me and a bomb squad is Lex's life will end with a bang. A long, torturous bang. The aftershock will haunt him in such a way, he'll regret that night. The night he ruined my life. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer via their wives. Son? Ugh. Yeah. Mom sounds half asleep, but she always manages to shout at a listenable volume. Don't you have class tomorrow? You're home kind of late. I refuse to engage in a conversation from opposite ends of the house with a half-asleep parent. Beckett? Grumbles Mom from her room with the delivery of a drunk about to pass out. I stamp my feet on the floor to let her know of my impending entrance into her room. Be right there, mother. The door to mom's room is half open. It reveals the amber streak of her partially closed bathroom door and this lady loves to waste electricity. She leans over to flick her lamp on. Investigating me with one eye closed and the other partially opened, she asks, Where have you been? Some of my classmates wanted to grab something to eat and insisted i tag along. That's nice, she replies. Turn off my bathroom light, please. The gentle rumbling of her sheets fills the air as I peek my head inside to shut the light off. A small Victoria's Secret bag towers over the graveyard of half-empty bottles of perfume and lotion that lay waste on her counter. Ew. The thought of my mom shopping at that store triggers my gag reflex. I've been telling you to get out a little more. School and running are great, but don't get to be my age without a few nights of chaos, she says as she props herself up on her side with the covers pulled up to her neck. Yeah, I reply, and thank God she doesn't seem concerned about my class attendance anymore. For now. Any tests this week? Polly sigh. Hated that class. I grab a seat by her closet. Next to it is an open Victoria's Secret box with a pile of white and pink tissue paper inside. I try to keep from assuming the worst. Anything having to do with Lex. So that's where I get it from. Silence. I scan her room, even though I should leave. What did you say? You hated poli and I said that's where I get it from. Oh. Right. Then she moans something unintelligible as I get up. Her phone sits on top of the mountain of comforters. It buzzes. Mom ignores it as she finally succumbs to the exhaustion of dealing with grieving families and a relationship with a married man. I lean in to kiss her cheek. Her phone buzzes again as I turn the lamp off. I pick it up. It's Lex. Can't do 1230. We'll be there at 130, but can't be too long have a 3P interview, wear the Santa thing. No sooner than I cringe at his message do I see a satiny red number in the corner next to her overpriced heels. And there goes my gag reflex again. Chapter 16. Lex. Piper's obsession with Santa hasn't exactly rubbed off on me. Random facts like his hometown in Rovaniemi being spit out by a seven-year-old with braided pigtails may impress some in the holiday spirit, but not me. The Santa facts rained down faster than Dondra could shit out a batch of reindeer treats. I should relish the fact that Piper knows the jolly old fat guy didn't wear red until he started shilling for coke, and Marvel once referred to him as the most powerful mutant ever registered. The time will come when Piper's fascination with St. Nick withers away. I'll miss sneaking around the house on Christmas Eve with her stash of toys, her reward for being a good girl. But not now. I lay in bed. The empty space, void of my partner, my wife. I take Piper's advice and Count Reindeer, hoping to catch some shut-eye. Nothing. My phone vibrates on the nightstand. It's Natasha. See you tomorrow. The door to the bedroom swings open. Ellis's silhouette fills the doorframe. You're up late, she growls as she stumbles into our room. She reeks of sautéed onions, booze, and a hint of her perfume. The light flicks on and she stands at the foot of the bed. I blow her off as I type a reply to Natasha. Either at noon. Gotta go. You're home late, but that's nothing new, I mumble, turning over on my stomach. Pulling my pillow over my head, I continue. You gonna turn off that light? Now you want to sleep? I reply with silence. Ellis kicks her heels off. They ricochet off the wall. Jewelry clinks onto her dresser. She swoops open her armoire to get her grandma pajamas and slams the door. Really? I say from under my pillow. He speaks. Good night, Ellis. Not so fast, Mr. Griffin. Mr. Griffin. A name she uses in times of anger and frustration. Usually during a road trip when we get lost or, now, when intoxicated. Likely because she's had a few too many drinks. She turns her back toward me and sits on the bed. Unzip me and don't you dare get any ideas. She commands with a slurry voice. Sure thing, Mrs. G. Don't call me that. I yank the zipper down her perfect body. A priceless gem made ugly by the way she's treated me over the past few years. A body that only belongs to me by marriage. She removes her dress, sliding it down to the floor. I admire what she used to offer many a night after an obscene amount of margs. You can turn around now, she barks as she circles a finger in the air. I take a glance at my phone. No new messages, no pics, no goodnight text. Just a like of the message I sent to confirm our midday rendezvous. I look up at Ellis and she scoffs. You smell like you had fun. Must have been a productive meeting. It was. The bathroom sink turns on, giving me a chance to take another peek at my phone. As Ellis brushes her teeth, I tap my fingers to my phone. Really can't wait to be with you again. Natasha replies with a heart emoji, and this must be what it feels like to be a teenager with a phone and an obsession. The sink turns off, and I gently place my phone on the nightstand. Ellis crawls into bed and whines about her day. As if I care about a client who asked for a last-minute revision or the intern who won't stop bitching about her boyfriend. Twenty years ago, after a girl's night out, she would have come to bed hungry for me. But not anymore. The image of Natasha sears into my brain and I resent Ellis for it. Even though I should resent myself. I should want her face seared into my brain. But for as long as I can remember, every advance, sexual and non-sexual, gets met with resistance. That of a pervert in a bar. Some low-life creep with missing teeth and no future, whisper-slurring pickup lines he found on Google with his phone. One can only shoot a shot so many times before the rejection turns him off more than an infected wound. A pus-filled pimple on an ass cheek. Rejection after rejection. Constant rejection from the most beautiful woman, my wife, can make her ugly quicker than a botched plastic surgery. And because of all this, I can't go to lunch with Piper tomorrow, she huffs. The sheets pull off of me. I tug them back. Ellis grunts and yanks them. An impromptu tug-of-war has started, and I let her win. She always wins. So I need you to go. Not possible. I have a podcast interview. Lie. I have a rendezvous with your replacement. Bump it up, she says, because she thinks the world will bend to me the way it always bends to her. No. She prattles on about the flexibility I always brag about and Piper expecting her mommy and daddy to be there for her at least once a week. Every Wednesday, one or both of us have lunch with her. If it's not both of us, then we each take turns and Piper keeps track of whose turn it is. And she will remember getting sold out by her mom. According to Piper, Santa will too. Did you forget the promise? I didn't, but it's high time our little girl learned how to experience disappointment in her life, she says covers, please. Ellis releases some of the covers and continues. The earlier she learns to cope with letdowns, the better. She's seven. My phone buzzes again, and I should have powered it off. What the hell, Lex? Barks Ellis. I thought you were trying to sleep. My guest's publicist is overseas. He's just confirming the interview, that's all. Lie. It's another message from Natasha. I need you so bad. Well, since you have their attention, tell them to postpone because you're meeting your seven-year-old daughter for lunch, says Ellis. I should, but I won't. And on my deathbed, when the Grim Reaper asks me if I regret my decisions about Natasha, I will say no. That Ellis is the one who should regret neglecting our relationship. She was the one who treated me like some sort of serial harasser, some undeserving imbecile. I should want to tell my guest's publicist that's really not my guest's publicist to postpone the interview that's really not an interview. My head says to do the right thing. Call it off. All of it. Never see Natasha again. But my heart wants to embrace her. Kiss her. Trace my fingers on every inch of her. My head says to plan on getting Piper a cheeseburger Happy Meal with an extra apple and a Hot Wheels car. Not a silly Barbie because me and my girlfriends don't play with those but my heart wants to visit Ms. Santa, a.k.a. Natasha. You're right, I say. What's an extra 45 minutes? I'll let them know. The doorbell whistles at me as I approach the front door to the house. In typical Griffin family tradition, I show the tiny doorbell camera who's number one. With the tap of my four-digit code, the date that Ellis and I met, the door unlocks. My phone rings and I slide my thumb across the screen. Hey, says Ellis on the other line with the emotion of a doorknob. What's up? Thanks for taking my turn. How was she? I kick the door closed behind me. Rudy scurries from around the corner and attempts to mount my calf. Down, bro. Humping you again? Nothing a greenie can't handle, I reply, rushing to the kitchen counter to get a treat for the little horned dog. "'So about Piper?' says Ellis. "'Before I can respond, "'she yells something about a four o'clock deadline "'to one of her minions. "'I clear my throat and interject. "'She cried for you and said "'Santa's gonna leave you a pair of his stinky old boots "'because coal is too good for you. "'Whatever. "'Typical lunch with a group of second graders "'making airplanes, "'mixing chocolate milk with canned green beans "'and talking about Christmas. "'Better you than me,' she huffs. "'I agree.' Lucky for you, I was able to move up my appointment. LIE Ellis babbles something about confirming a podcast interview for a client, an indie author with a huge following in India and North Houston. Twilight meets Crocodile Dundee? Are you fucking kidding me? I better let you go, I say, because I have better things to do than listen to Ellis rant about her clients. Hey, she quips. Check the camera. I try to play stupid. Huh? The security camera, Lex. I learned the trick from Avery. You can learn much about the art of sneaking around in 2023 from someone who's grown up in a surveillance state. I've turned into my 18-year-old daughter, disabling the cameras to get a little fun in. Oh, I say. Yeah, I'll check it out as soon as I make double sure my gear is set up for my interview. Don't forget, she replies with the tone of a tyrant from Orwell's 1984. On it, honey, I say, as I pull back the drapes. Natasha's car glides to a stop across the street, and I've never been more excited for a visit from Mrs. Claus. Ellis continues to berate her staff. Her voice carries the same annoyance with them as it does with me and our family. I envy her staff because at least they can escape her wrath at night and on some weekends. I have to resort to disabling cameras and sneaking around to escape from the tyranny of our marriage. Ellis, I say. She ignores me. I clear my throat, and her ignoring me is about to interfere with my interview that's not really an interview. I have to go. She hangs up before I can fake an I love you. Natasha cracks a slightly peeved grin. Her pearl earrings glisten in the sun and the collar to her navy blue peacoat flaps in the wind. Her heels click on the cobblestone sidewalk leading into my house. Don't worry, Alexander, she says behind pursed lips. She removes a gloved hand from her coat pocket and looks at her watch. She investigates me with unblinking eyes, then shifts her attention back to her watch. Her eyes pounce back to me, and she shuffles close, grabbing a fistful of my sweater. I won't intrude on your precious recording schedule. She releases my sweater and holds her fingers out as if she released something gross. Something ridden with germs. I motion for her to have a seat on the bench by the front door. She refuses and fishes out a turquoise box. With a swipe of her hand, she removes her sunglasses, revealing swollen, red eyes and smudged eyeliner. I have a knack for making women unhappy. Mind telling me what's wrong? I ask, patting the bench next to me. She shakes her head and loosens the floral print scarf around her neck. Shoving it into her coat pocket, she grumbles. No, I don't. I sense a breakup. Can't say I blame her. Nobody of Natasha's stature truly endeavors to remain on side chick status. She rails into me. About laying it all out there for me. About my talents for getting the best and worst out of her. About making her feel all the things that not even her dead husband could make her feel and that she's doing these things and allowing these feelings, only to get led down the road to misery. She paces the length of the porch and thank God the camera's off because Ellis would hound me nonstop about her brunette doppelganger lingering around the front porch. The click of her heels gets louder with each step, signifying the depths of her anger and anxiety. Her hair dances about in the wind. We're in our 40s, she declares, and I know this. My reflection in the mirror reminds me several times a day, sweetheart. Her pacing stops and her eyes widen. Sweetheart? She huffs and wind blows from her nostrils as she scorns me about not earning the right to call her a sweetheart. That when I can make some sort of effort to not treat her like some second-rate twenty-something in search of a sugar daddy, then maybe we can graduate to pet names. She inhales a long breath and crosses her arms. We're in our 40s, and in 10 or 20 years or 30, I want to know and feel like the people I spent time with valued me as much as I valued them. She weeps softly. I stand, and she waves her hands at me to sit down. Rudy yelps from inside the house. I lean back and tap the window. He stops. My son will finish school soon, and after that, it's just me. All by myself. And me. She scoffs. You and your wife and Piper and Avery and your dog who always seems to need you. Ouch. I stand and refuse her gestures for me to remain seated. Our eyes meet. The droopy features of her eyes and the arching of her groomed eyebrows exaggerate her sadness. She looks past me and into the window as I draw her into my arms. Her hand pats my back as we embrace. Your dining room? She says. What about it? It's the kind of dining room I've always envisioned having. Ever since B was born, with the kind of table that could seat eight, maybe ten, perfect for awkward Thanksgiving dinners and anniversary meals, dinners with B's first dates and 40th birthday celebrations with our friends, the table reminds me of something. Nothing special, I say. Pottery Barn, Fall Catalog 2017, same as any other yuppie family in the Houston area. But you get all that comes with it, and I get some twisted version of it. Ours. At best, I get a peek inside. At worst, I accept the fate given to me. Solitude. In the distance, a car drives by, slowly creeping in front of my house. Inside, a young male figure with a ball cap and sunglasses. He sees that I see him, and he speeds away. Chapter 17. Beckett. Shit. Shit, shit, shit. I may come to regret driving by Lex's house before class. I don't think we made eye contact. Fuck, what if we did? About 30 yards, tall bushes, and my mom standing in the way have me thinking we didn't. Of all the married men my mom can be hooking up with, why does it have to be him? 40 into 45 won't get too much attention in this neighborhood, but anything above 45 will get the Karens clucking on that stupid next-door app. I should know, because Mom confronted me about my car on her timeline. And I can't have that happening. But avoiding attention from Lex and possibly my mom makes the risk worth it. I press my foot down, past the mom jogging with two little squirts in a big-ass stroller. She snarls. I wave. My focus should home in on Polly's side, but it remains stuck in a continuous loop of lunacy, obsessing over my mom and Lex. And even if he confronts me about today... Maybe I'll rip the band-aid off his life and squeeze the blood dry instead of a slow, painful death. I stabbed the radio with my finger. Maybe some songs will take my mind off of seeing my mom with the man responsible for my dad's death. Big mistake, because it's the weekend, and if I hear another DJ saying, The weekend makes any day feel like the weekend, I'll track them down and knock them 10,000 weekends into the future. I stabbed the radio to shut it the fuck up. Opting for 45 minutes of silence minus the slightly more than occasional car horn. H-Town. They love their horns more than the city they claim to be the best city in the world. My blood boils. Knowing that Lex will only hurt my mom, I should play the long game and I will. I cool down. Nothing like a drive to school to set me back to my mission. Ellis looks at me from inside the cup holder. I must have removed her business card in my fit of rage. I scoop it up and shove it into the pocket of my shirt. Soon enough, Ellis. Soon enough, I say. But not yet. A glance at the clock in my odometer reveals I'll be at school in less than ten minutes. Yay. But instead of public policy and democracy and the will of the people and all the bullcrap that make us learn about our sacred institution whose inhabitants belong in actual institutions, I ponder Lex and his demise. The look on his stupid face. His square jaw and perfect dimples. The craters my thumbs could pinch and pull until his face rips off his skull. Then I ponder my next encounter with Ellis and her overpriced red-soled shoes and freckled chest. My life is her business and she can run it, me, into the ground. We could copulate on Lexus studio gear and snap pics, print them and mail them to his house. A true Beckett-style mother-of-all-bombs. One that would detonate his marriage into middle-age oblivion. All this fantasizing about Ellis and Lex makes the traffic suck less because Houston traffic doesn't ever not suck. I pull into the U of H garage, ready to sacrifice my time for this stupid class. America sure knows how to run a racket, fight for freedom but keep slaves, win a civil war, build fake wealth via credit, bully nations by means of the petrodollar, and propagate the masses with the facade of American exceptionalism. I get out and walk to class. Past the jock-looking dudes with muscles protruding through their two sizes too small long-sleeved shirts. Past the girls hunched over on a bench who almost certainly got trashed last night. Excuse me," says a voice from behind, followed by a tap on my shoulder. I stop and crane my neck. It's the girl from my poli-sci class, and we exchange smiles. Her hair twists up to a tight bun held together by a hot pink twisty thing. She smells of lotion, and her kind eyes give me a quick look up and down. Hey, I say, and Mom says I get weird around the opposite sex. My eyes droop down but not before her hoodie catches my gaze. It reads, G-A-B-4-E, and Lex lives rent-free in my head, even when I try not to let him. You don't strike me as a Lex listener, I say as I start walking again. Nothing else to wear. You can blame me for everything that goes wrong in this class, I reply. Riffing off the acronym of Lex's catchphrase. Promise? I hold a fist out for a fist bump. She smiles in her mouth. The lower part looks familiar. The way it crosses under and reveals more of her lower teeth. I've seen it somewhere before. She bumps my fist and winks. Promise, I say. And I mean it. One thousand percent. Anywho, she says. And I love the way she draws out the who with her lips. Did you read any chapters since last class? Nah. She snickers. What? She tells me Polly isn't the kind of class you can phone in and cram for at two in the morning. I agree, nodding my head. She speaks of the importance of learning about those who make the rules, so we can eventually break the rules and break the will of our rulers and she's already sounding like my kind of gal. You definitely sound like a Lex G fan. She groans and tugs at her hoodie, as if doing so will erase the GB4E on her chest. We walk in silence, and as we approach the building, I extend an arm to open the door. We make eye contact. Her ocean blue eyes remind me of someone. I say, hey, semester's almost over and I never got your name. She offers a hand in return and grips it tight, almost too tight. Avery. Avery Griffin. Chapter 18 Lex Tatum Sarno glares at me from the center of my monitor, and I wish it was Natasha instead. But Tatum, the next guest, my reluctant guest who only joined the podcast as a favor, she remains motionless as I greet her and go over the interview. Tatum, the internet's go to Houstonian for noobs wanting to learn about all things H Town, bobs her head about. She wears a faded brown corduroy blazer with gray patches on the elbows. Underneath, the hot pink button-down shirt patterned with pictures of Frida Kahlo tells me she despises people like me. Straight. White. Male. Just a quick five-count and we can start, I say. Running a wrinkly hand through her wiry gray hair, she asks, How long do you plan on speaking with me? No longer than thirty, maybe forty-five minutes. Good, she replies, looking down at her wrist. I have a speech right down the street at the Society of the Daughters of Houston in less than an hour. She crosses her arms and I wish I had ditched out and followed Natasha home. I look at my watch and 40 minutes can't come soon enough. Also, how's the lighting? I offer a wink and a smile. A-okay. She yelps a series of demands and a power outage sounds good right about now. TikTok has created an entire class of entitled nobodies who think that because they have a few million views and several hundred thousand followers to match their bullshit doctorate in bullshitology, they can act like Mariah fucking Carey. But I'm a professional. I smile and nod. Sure thing. Stick to the city of Houston proper, nothing about the west side, nothing further north of the original gallery furniture, and nothing about Galveston. Her eyes arch up. She grins a pursed lip grin. It grows into a smile with a missing bottom tooth. She coughs a three packs of Marlboro a day cough and makes me want to get tested for emphysema. She wheezes. Good. We eventually warm up to each other when Rudy crashes the video feed and goes ape shit because of the FedEx truck outside. Probably another purse for my wife. She loves the story of Rudy's name and the fact that we can live Christmas time all year long. Never gets old. I say with a smile that covers up the lie. We chat about the Uptown lighting ceremony, about the traffic leaving that event being almost as bad as traffic leaving NRG Stadium after a concert. Mind if I share my screen, she asks? Please do. She talks of the early 1800s and how the area that we know as Uptown was part of Mexico, how Stephen F. Austin and 300 colonists traveled through the heart of it, and all I can think about is colonizing Natasha's body. Whoa, I mumble, part interest in useless Houston history, mostly interest in Natasha colonizing me. We chat about Italian immigrants in the area and the early estates the colonists built. What's a random fact about Houston that nobody knows? I raise my hands to the sides of my head and jerk them outward. Something mind-blowing. Tatum lets out a sigh and stares upward. One that'll get me some responses and engagement on TikTok. I say, because I'm not above the desire for my podcast to go viral. She giggles and shifts herself in her chair. One time, somebody at a radio station asked me a similar question. The radio personality referred to me as the Encyclopedia Houstonia, and he didn't believe it. So he named an intersection. One he thought was random. Said West Park in 59. Her giggle turns into a laugh and then a hacking cough, and if she doesn't stop, I might have to dial 911 and send them to her location. Okay, I say, wanting more, and this better be good, because I want to brag about this to everyone I know. The area. It's near a Walmart and a micro-center, she continues. Yeah, I see it from the West Park Tollway. That godforsaken freeway we pay to sit stuck in? Yes, she says. Well, that was the site of the first KKK rally ever held in Houston. They cringed, but they never questioned my title again. The biggest set of historical blue balls. Same shade as the ones Natasha left me with as she sped off, angry about her status of being my side chick. Like I'd ever brag about knowing the site of Houston's first ever Klan rally. Wow, I say, unimpressed. I fold my arms into my chest and the lights flicker. Probably nothing. She prattles on about the importance of knowing everything about how our city started and how far it's come. Her voice gurgles, but it's not her voice. The electricity gods are choking her message. The one about people being complicated people and societies being complicated societies. I have complicated myself and the society that is my inner circle. My family. The family I should want is the family I avoid. The interview I clamored for, but then clamored to escape because of my affair. The universe has a strange way of giving us what we say we want, even though we don't really wanted. Tatum's voice gurgles again, but this time it won't stop. Rudy joins the malfunction of my show with a series of barks. I lean back in my chair and look out the window to see if it's the Amazon guy. Nothing. The gurgling of Tatum's voice stops. She disappears from my screen as the rest of the power in the house shuts down. Rudy's bark turns to a growl and it has me wondering if I need to reach for the pistol hidden in my bookshelf. I take another peek outside. Nothing in the perimeter, but in front of the house, a car speeds off. It's the same one from this morning. Chapter 19. Beckett. I don't always suffer from FOMO, but when I do, it's because I've just crashed Lex Griffin's podcast. Knocking out the power to his house is merely a bonus. What I wouldn't give to be a fly on that wall. Maybe even a flea on Rudy's back. Watching the downward spiral of his podcast and the cancellation of what little ad revenue he's got, the FOMO wears off as I ponder the next two tricks up my sleeve. Ellis and Avery. Someone call 911 because I'd like to report an arson. I'm about to set Lex's life on fire and fan the flames with misery. I pull into the parking lot of a nearby grocery store to survey the damage. The thumbs down counts on Lex's YouTube stream increase by the nanosecond and my work is done here. Time to focus on more pressing matters, like who to seduce first, Ellis or Avery, mother or daughter. I pull up Instagram and finding people is way too easy. You'd think with all the horror stories and Law & Order episodes meant to scare young women into disconnecting, more of them would at least set their shit to private. But not Avery. Just like her mom, she's horny to share everything with her 1,722 Instagram followers. She likes coffee, as evidenced by every other post of a Starbucks cup or some cheesy coffee meme. She loves Rudy, possibly more than Piper, and definitely more than her parents. And books. Let's just say her choice of literature makes E.L. James look like a children's author. A pic of a coffee mug, a burnt scone, and a copy of... I let him mine my Bitcoin. The cover reveals a dude with a mask and an iron jaw, with chiseled abs. A tattoo of the Bitcoin logo spans his torso. The manicured hands of a woman cover his chest and I want to hold Avery's curves right after I mine Ellis' treasure from under the rubble of Lex's demolished existence. My phone pings. The notification reads, The OGAG followed you on Instagram. Another notification. The OG AG liked your photo. I haven't posted in over a week. It was a pic of my watch, displaying my personal record 5K run. A 7 minute mile pace. Another notification. The OG AG liked your photo. This one was from 7 months ago. Me and my mom on her birthday. My phone bleeds notifications. Avery likes 20 pics in a row and I thought I was obsessive. Another chime. A direct message from OG AG herself, and what is it with females and their love of using OG? As if any one of them have ever been to Fifth Ward or Segundo Barrio. I should report her for stalking, but Avery and I have business to take care of. She doesn't know it yet, but she will help me set her dad's life on fire. But not before I let her or her mother heat me up a little. I open the message and judging by the 20 likes, spanning the past couple of minutes, she's two more away from abducting me and slicing my face off so she can wear it next Halloween. The message reads, Thanks for the follow. Hope you like coffee, books, and makeup. I wait exactly 15 minutes. Anything sooner would make me look like a deranged stalker. I scroll my feed. I stop. I reply, I'm a sucker for all three, actually. Well, except for makeup. Lipstick and eyeliner don't look good on me. She replies right away, and she's ready for the Bee Master. I suppose you might be right about that, LOL. My phone chimes. A text from another Griffin. Her mom. I can already envision its contents. When you're done with my daughter, let me show you how a real woman can take care of you. Yeah, right, but it's the next best thing. Nymphas, tonight. Noah's not an option. Drinks on me and let's hope drunk margarita chick doesn't show up this time. Another DM from Avery. We should study tonight. You, me, and lattes over democracy. The Griffin ladies have presented me with quite a dilemma. I wiggle my fingers over my phone, pondering my next DM. Sorry, democracy bores me, so I'm seeing your mom tonight, and if she's lucky, I might put my ballot in her box. Just kidding. I sigh and pound my thumbs on my phone. Sorry, plans tonight. Maybe later in the week? She replies. Yeah, that was a last-minute ask. Just looking for something to do while the power's out at home. Oops. Chapter 20. Lex. Every time something goes wrong at home or with the podcast, Ellis tells me to figure it out. To be solution-oriented, not problematic. Her synergistic, LinkedIn-mimicking lingo makes me want to boil the proverbial ocean and throw my problems in it. She has a point, though. Unfortunately. Power loss means loss of sponsor money and the loss of sponsor money drives me batshit crazy because it drives Ellis batshit crazy. And I can hear her already. Get your shit together, Lex. I push the button on the back of my no-fucking-power Mac, waiting for the obvious sounder to blare from the speaker. Nothing. I walk to the kitchen. The oven clock is off and so is every other lighted clock. The light switches turn up nothing as well. I text Ellis and she asks if we paid the light bill and who in this neighborhood forgets the light bill. I reply with a yes. She replies with a shrugging female emoji. She sends a new message and demands this be taken care of by the time she gets home. I send a text. Not like this was planned. She replies. Fix it. ASAP. My wife barks in person and sends cold demands via text. A true girl boss. But I want Natasha to be my girl boss. Ellis sends another text. And try to have dinner ready when I get home. You've had us eating way later than we should. I reply with a thumbs up because if I try with actual words, they'd likely be, do it your fucking self. My phone beeps and it's Natasha. I can't answer right away, so I don't open the message, and not messaging back right away raises a huge red flag redder than Santa's triple-X-sized coat. This is not the most wonderful time of the fucking year. I reach into the cabinet above the oven to grab a flashlight. Off to the garage and through all the bins of crap we don't need and never use. A purgatory of junk that needs to be purged or burned. I trip over a bin and catch my balance. The electric panel awaits on the other side of more bins and giant bags of different-sized Christmas trees. A pink one for Valentine's Day, a blue one for Fourth of July, and a black one for Halloween. I stumble through the saw-like obstacle course, and these trees can burn in hell. Popping the flashlight in my mouth, it tastes like dust and cheap plastic, I open the power supply and flick the main switch. Nothing. My phone chimes again, and it's Natasha again. Maybe I should check my messages. Take a break from my powerless nightmare. Hell has no internet and non-stop texts from Ellis. I used to not feel this way, but success can change a person. It changed my wife, who now has the personality of a 20th century dictator and the libido of a screwdriver. I plant my thumb on my phone. The first message from Natasha reads, Sorry I left so abruptly. I already miss you. Feelings Mutual The second message commands me to go to her house tomorrow and this is the kind of girl boss I can get down with. The third message is an image but I refuse to look. I trudge through the obstacle course of useless holiday shit in the garage. No falls. No injuries. Victory. Rudy greets me at the entrance to the house from the garage. Sometimes it feels like he knows my secrets and plans to write a tell-all. Don't worry, little guy. I say as I crouch down to scratch him behind the ear. It'll all get fixed. I take a seat on the floor in the hallway next to Piper's bedroom. Rudy wriggles himself between my legs. His tail wags, slapping my leg with the rhythm of a drummer. Gotta check this message, I say. Then we'll figure out the power. I grab his snout, cupping the bottom with my palm. Cause we don't want mommy going apeshit crazy on us, do we? I open my phone and click the green box with the white thought bubble. The power in our house needs to get rebooted but it can wait. My podcast audience can wait. But not me. I open the image and Christmas has arrived early. Natasha will be the greatest gift I've unwrapped since the Atari 2600 I got back in 1981. I hit the thumbs up icon on her picture and one doesn't do it justice. I wish I can give her a trillion of them. I speak as I type, furiously tapping my thumbs on the surface of my phone. Oh, what fun it is to ride my slave when we meet again. She sends me a blushing face emoji. I drop my phone with zero fucks to give about the power. My head falls back into the wall and I blow out a huge sigh. I whisper Natasha's name, thinking about our meetings and our text exchanges and her pics of my obsession, my transgression. A sound interrupts my moment, the pitter-patter of feet, a faint voice by the entryway. It asks about the lights. The voice belongs to Avery. She says the power has returned. The pitter-patter belongs to Piper. Daddy, she says. I open my eyes and my perfect little angel stares at me with equal parts scorn and curiosity. Her eyes narrow. I spread my arms open for a hug. She denies. Story of my life. Daddy, she repeats as her eyebrows crinkle who's Natasha? Your future stepmom is what I want to say. Oh, somebody who wants to help me with my podcast. Piper's nostrils flare. Avery enters the room in a tizzy and scans me up and down. Danny said he wants to ride sleighs with someone named Natasha. Chapter 21. Beckett. Wrecking the life of the scumbag who wrecked my family's life has turned out to be more complicated than expected, and complicated problems require complicated solutions. So I have to power through and think. Conventional wisdom suggests I should prefer studying with Avery and enjoy the residual benefits I know will trickle down. But the founder of Mama Bear Marketing is later Honeypot, and I've gladly fallen for the trap. As usual, traffic in the area sucks donkey balls. Par for the course on Taco Tuesday in Edo, I ponder Lex's stupid podcast and the fallout from my stunt, if any. Time to step up my game and some asshole just blasted his horn at me. Probably one of those annoying California transports. A light turns green, and if you're not hitting the gas at that exact moment, they serenade you with a 10-second honk. I brake check the asshole, some old sap in a minivan. He comes within inches of rear-ending me. Another blast of his horn and he swerves into the next lane. He rolls his window down and screams something at me. A little face plasters itself against the window of his sad little minivan, and it's obvious this guy hasn't gotten laid in at least five years. He yells, I almost crashed into your car, you psycho. I laugh as I accelerate, cut him off, and brake check him again. He blasts his horn again and I flip him off before making an erratic U-turn. There's not a single parking spot in sight because the taco capital of the world has drawn in every self-proclaimed taco connoisseur. So I park, illegally, at a nearby funeral home. Hopefully nobody sees me cutting the opposite way. Even if they do, it's a price worth paying. As I get out of my car, I catch a couple of old people staring at me with curiosity as if I'm somehow related to their deceased loved one. I'll call myself their cousin's daughter's lawyer's niece, twice removed. And then they'll nod their heads in agreement and carry on, saying, I knew he looked familiar. But the couple says nothing. They keep staring as I nod toward them. Placing a palm on my chest, I mouth the words, I'm sorry. And I walk away before they can respond. The lady weeps hysterically as I leave the parking lot and head toward Nympha's. I think about Ellis' last text. No is not an option. I've never enjoyed getting bossed around quite like this. My phone chimes. Mom, you coming home for dinner? I reply with a no and a follow-up. Late night tonight. Studying with a new friend. Girlfriend material. It's a half-truth, but that's okay because she and Lex live a full-blown lie. A lie that I will fix. No sooner than I hit send do I get another text. Ellis, I see you, and I want to see her, and there she is, the Stifler's mom of HTX, waiting for me outside the restaurant. The green of her tight-fitting dress balances her fair skin, and Lex definitely ain't giving her what she needs. She pats the empty spot next to her on the bench. I oblige, and she crosses her legs, revealing an infinity symbol on the inside of her ankle. She sees that I see it. One of my few regrets... Oh, is that right? My husband. She pauses and puckers her lips. Letting out a huff, she continues. My husband and I got them on our honeymoon. And you're here right now? She arches her shoulders and lifts her chin. We make no eye contact. Yep. Why? I know why. I like you she says, and I like the way she says she likes me because it's in a friends with benefits kind of way. We hardly know each other, I reply, even though I know your pathetic scumbag husband way too much. She tells me I look at her in a way that no man has ever looked at her. Sad. That my eyes remind her of something she never knew could be possible. Sad. That all her husband ever talks about is this stupid podcast that can barely pay the mortgage. I play dumb because I know all the things. What's this stupid podcast? She stops and pats my leg. A coy smirk spreads across her face and I can already tell she wants to skip tacos and margs and go straight to dessert. She licks her lips and cranes her head toward the restaurant, crawling with people. So crowded. One would think with all the restaurants in this town we'd never have to wait for an hour just to get seated. She nods and examines me. Up and down, then up to my eyes. She investigates me like one of her minion's finished projects. Like her own project. The Stifler's mom of HTX. The one U of H should make their cougar. She dances a couple of fingers up and down my leg. Her mouth parts and something twitches in my pants. A rocket ready to launch into Ellis' Milky Way. I adjust my ass on the bench and she removes her hand. Don't be nervous, she says. She should be nervous. She's the one with a husband and two kids. I shake my head and lie. I'm alright. School tomorrow? I take in a huge breath. Smoked meat and garlic fills my nose and so does her perfume. She snickers. Sounds like a yes to me. Yeah. Polly sigh. A blank look sweeps over her face and she turns away. Yes, Ellis. The class I have with your daughter. The one I should be studying for, but I'm not because I've chosen you over the study of our precious institutions. I've chosen you because I've chosen violence for Lex. She says nothing. I clear my throat and say, But I don't have it until afternoon time. It's my only class. Her eyes widen with a sort of epiphany. She remains quiet. Ponderous. And I hope she doesn't begin to second-guess our little meet-up. I'm all caught up, so I belong to you for the night, I say. And I want to wrap an arm around her like the guy at the movies always does. But not yet. Too soon. She smiles, and I have her back. The whites of her teeth are whiter than a mountain of cocaine in Tony Montana's office, and I'm addicted. With the pat of a knee, she answers, I've got a lot of work to do at the office. My adrenaline level plummets. Shit. I knew this was a terrible idea. Well, we can just hang out for an hour and... She interrupts me with a finger on my mouth. You are the work I have to do at the office. Chapter 22 Lex Avery scowls. She wants to know if I always read smut aloud when mom's at work. I'm not looking at smut, I say. Piper turns to her sister with a bewildered look on her face. The picture of Santa on her red and white pajamas stares at me with self-righteous indignation. Sissy, what a smut! I take a knee in front of Piper and place a hand on each of her shoulders. Piper, please don't say that word if you want Santa to come over on Christmas. Avery crosses her arms. Piper follows suit, whisking my hands off her shoulders in the process. Avery castigates me like I'm some recalcitrant teenager. She says, Piper misses Ellis and wants to see her now. But I have to study tonight, says Avery. So that leaves you. Avery slams the door on the way out. My phone chimes again and I know it's Natasha. I have two arms full of Piper so I skip my dopamine hit. Your phone makes a lot of noise, Daddy, says Piper. Her eyebrows furrow and she wrinkles her nose. I want Mommy. At least one of us does. Me too, Piper Bear. Lie. My phone goes off again. I ignore it, even though I don't want to. Go put on your pants under your nightie and we can go see her. She slithers herself out of my arms and trots down the hall. Rudy chases her into her room and I get a break. The two messages from Natasha. They say she wants to meet again tomorrow. I'm in charge of lunch. I whisper laugh. Sure. Be there at noon. You laugh at your phone a lot, says Piper from down the hall. She stuffs her feet into her boots and continues. Santa hopes you're not laughing at others. He doesn't like it. And Santa doesn't like it when you won't let Mommy work. She and Daddy have to work so you and Avery can have a house over your heads and food on the table. Piper ignores me and demands that we bring Rudy with us. Stupid dog. He puts on a show with his exaggerated eyes. The white's underneath two caramel-colored circles penetrating my soul to extract a yes. It doesn't. We stay for a few minutes and then you, milady, a booper nose with a finger. You have to get to bed so you can wake up on time for school in the morning. Fifteen minutes, says Piper. She negotiates like her mother, always wanting more and never settling for less. Rudy barks, then whimpers. He's in on this, too. This is not a negotiation, Piper. Fourteen minutes, she says. And what's a negoti? She stops and glares at me. A negotiation is where two or more people work to agree on something they both want. I pause and rummage around the front hallway for Rudy's leash. You want mommy, but she has to work, and I have to work, and we want you in bed, but you also need your mommy. So we all try to figure something out until everyone's happy. She says, Tell your phone to stop making so much noise. I check it and hope for Natasha. It's not. It's your mommy. Mommy! Piper scoops Rudy under her arms and starts dancing. Her precious mommy says she spoke with Avery and she's not to bring Piper to the office. Important deadline. Too late. She's going to see her daughter, like it or not. Time for Ellis to remember what it's like to be a mom. Chapter 23. Beckett. Ellis drives the key into the lock that separates us from the space where Christmas shall come early. I, too, am a key. A key that will turn and unlock the revenge which will set our lives back on course. She jostles the doorknob. Offering a slight kick to the bottom of the raggedy door, she turns to me. Still trying to get the landlord to replace this thing. I smile back. I say nothing. Track lights click on as we enter the hallway, and now I know what it's like to be a deer in front of a car with its bright lights on in the middle of the night but Lex will be the deer and I will be the semi that plows into everything he loves. Welcome to my marketing empire, says Ellis, holding out her arm as she ushers me into an open area lined with pink and red couches. On the wall, three plants in the shape of bears hold hands under hot pink neon lighting that reads, Mama Bear Marketing. Cool. She grins as I take in the surroundings. I like that she likes that I like it. The wall across from the plant bears boasts a huge poster-sized family picture. Her, her daughters, and Lex. Ugh. How ironic he robbed me of an experience like that because he stole my dad and I'll wreck his world before a picture of him. The pic shows the Griffin family at the beach. Avery smiles big, holding her sister, whose face is lined with the pink of something sweet. Ellis stares at the camera with a blank face, her ocean eyes hidden behind oversized sunglasses. Lex smiles the kind of smile that deserves at least ten throat punches. Cute family, I say, shoving clenched fists into my pockets. An arm wraps around my shoulder. Thanks, she replies. The tone of her voice says she hates standing next to him. About this work that I need to get done? A shoe launches into the wall. Then another. Aren't you going to ask me if I need anything to drink? She shoves me down on the couch, and I would like nothing more than to get bullied into having sex with Ellis Griffin if it means destroying Lex's marriage. I wasn't thirsty anyway, I reply, adjusting myself onto my elbows. Google. Play Lana Del Rey. Ellis raises her chin and bites down on the corner of her top lip and she'll turn all of my summertime sadness into a holiday rager. I clear my throat because how else does someone like me, painfully inexperienced with older women, respond to the Stifler's mom of HTX sliding her dress off? She coos and turns her back to me, revealing wings tattooed on her shoulder blades. So, I whisper... About this work you need me to do? She spins around and it's like my very own Victoria's Secret Fashion Show. Prancing toward me, she unlocks her bra from the front and replies with perfection times two. Lana starts singing with The weekend. I can't fucking escape this guy's voice. They start singing about lusting for life. And Ellis leans toward me, planting the palms of her hands on each of my knees. Her breasts swoop down on my chest as she presses her lips on my cheek. She whispers, I need you to give me some exercise. And she withdraws. You heard Lana. Ellis wiggles a finger in my direction. Take off your clothes. I oblige because I respect my elders, but I fear that Christmas won't be the only thing coming early. So I hurl myself up and spin her around. Now I face her family photo and there's nothing more sexless than looking at Lex looking at me with that goofy-ass smile. A few years back, my friend Eli's parents took us to the beach. It was my first time going to a beach and they say Galveston's not a real beach but really dangerous animals still live in the water. Never go in the water when you see that, Eli said, pointing to a purple flag. You never know what lurks under the chocolate milk-looking water. Ellis wraps her legs around my waist and yanks me in. The scent of geranium on her neck nearly finishes me off. I pull away and look at the photo. Don't worry about them, she commands, licking her lips. I won't. I focus on the purple flag and I can be a dangerous marine animal too, ready to do shark things to Lex. Ellis uncoils a leg and dances it on my chest. They're okay, she mumbles except for him. I agree. I take the foot she planted on my chest and I pull it to my mouth, blowing between her toes. She whimpers and her eyes fall shut as she squirms. I take a toe in my mouth and home in on the purple flag. I nibble. She growls. Lana starts singing about chemtrails and I'd breathe in tanks of chemtrails if I can last longer than three minutes with this woman. I work my tongue down her foot as she massages her breasts. Her eyebrows close in as her mouth gapes open. I place her foot down and reach in to kiss her. She rears her head back. No. No kissing on the mouth. I no longer have to fear my rocket launching too early. She has deflated it and perhaps it's for the best. She curls a finger under my chin. Kiss me down here. She guides my hand to the center of her universe. I pull her panties down, finding the perfect landing strip. I look up as I position my face between her milky thighs, her milky way. The purple flag waves in the background of the family photo and Lex stares back with his punchable smile. Ellis's hands drag me down to her nether region. She whisper asks, Still need something to drink? I can't answer that question because the founder of Mama Bear Marketing is drowning me in her honey pot. I kiss her thighs and it sends a signal to Ellis to yank me back down to her depths. Swirling my tongue in and around the most beautiful flower I've ever seen, I ask, Is this the kind of exercise you need, or did you have something else in mind? Shut up, she replies. Her hands pull my hair and she draws me further into her milky way. Ellis moans a moan I've never heard in real life. Lotta stops singing and Ellis pushes me away and what if she has cops waiting to barge in and take me away? Shh, she demands. I say nothing because when a mama bear shushes you, you shut your mouth so the honeypot doesn't get taken away. She slides off the couch and reaches for her undergarments. A phone buzzes. Hers. She picks it up from the floor. Her lips curl and her face reddens. A vein pops out from her neck as she slides herself into her bra. Exercise class is over already? She shakes her head, glancing about her office. Holding a finger to her mouth, she uses the other to point down a dark hallway. Class ends down there, I see. Ellis's phone sounds off again. She grunts and exhales a deep breath. Go down the hall and take a right. You'll see a kitchen with a door on the opposite side. Leave that way. Take an Uber to your car at the restaurant and I'll pay you back. In more ways than one, I hope. Everything okay? I ask. A knock on the door is my answer and I'm no longer the shark. The universe has brought an unwanted guest into our exercise class. She says it's her husband and her little girl, and Lex really knows how to ruin everything. Chapter 24 Lex Nobody has the art of the fake smile mastered quite like Ellis. Piper sees that her mommy is happy to see her. I see that my wife loathes my presence. Mommy, I miss you, shouts Piper as she jumps into Ellis's embrace. I miss you too, Piper Bear. Ellis pauses to glare at me. Her eyes resemble that of a lycanthrope ready to... She sets our daughter down on the floor and points her to the couch under those obnoxious plant bears on the wall. Ellis shakes her head at me. Grabbing my arm, we head back to the entryway. I told you I was working late. She seethes, breathing heavier than usual. You seem real busy, Ellie. She hates when I call her Ellie says it makes her sound like a pimply-faced teenager lost in the woods at band camp. Google. Turn music off, she barks. But I like music, says Piper, playing with the leaves of the bear plants on the wall. Leave mommy's bears alone, you don't want to hurt them, I say. My phone chimes and Ellis growls. She stares at me as though she wants to blow up my phone while it's in my pocket. Little late for texts from your producer, she quips. She reaches for the drawer along the wall and pulls out a coloring book and a box of crayons. Piper knows the sound of the drawer. Like Pavlov's dog, she drops her bottom on the couch, hurls herself off, and scuttles in our direction. Colors! Ellis nods in the direction of my front pocket. You gonna get that? I want to, but I don't. It can wait, I reply. Ellis marches into the area she calls the Mama Bear's Den, where Piper has made herself at home with the crayons and coloring book. With her back facing me, I take a moment to fish my phone out of my pocket and see a notification from Natasha. Before Ellis can turn around, I shove it back in my pants. Piper Bear, we need to let Mommy get back to work. She's... I stop to fake clearing my throat. She's... Really, really busy. I make air quotes around really, really busy, and Ellis hisses. I have a client coming in at eight, she barks, and she never gets defensive. Piper extends an arm upward. Offering Ellis a red crayon, she says, Color one Santa picture with me, please. Ellis turns my way, and her eyes shoot into the back of her head. One picture, that's it. Piper offers me a brown crayon, and what do I do with a brown crayon? Draw a turd to symbolize this evening? Color, demands Piper. Don't you want to color with me and Mommy? Of course I don't want to color with you and the Ice Queen. Sure, I say, and I lay down on the floor next to Piper so she sits between me and the Ice Queen. She's my human shield. Five minutes. We scribble and color and exchange crayons as the longest five minutes of my life crawl slower than a drunk centipede on ayahuasca. We trace, dot, and speckle the blank pages with all of Piper's favorite colors. Pinks, purples, reds, and greens. Ellis does this thing when something or someone annoys her, which is most of the time. She clicks her tongue on the side of her mouth. As the three of us color this purple-clad Santa with green reindeer, She clicks louder and louder. Must be a really important meeting for them to come over at 8 o'clock in the evening during the week, I say. Ellis slams her crayon down and Piper remains in Piperland. The Ice Queen chides me, lectures me about the importance of doing what it takes to care for the girls, that I no longer understand what it means to do anything for the love of family. She pecks my chest with a manicured finger, and I get the feeling she'd one day like to jab it into my neck and let me bleed out. You'll never get it, Lex. And I won't, but that's okay, because I'll always have my sanity. What sanity she hasn't drained out of me. I pat Piper on the arm. Come on, time to let Mama work. Ah, whines Piper. She rams the crayons into the box and slams it onto the colored page. Ellis frowns at Piper's dismay, and the Ice Queen might have a heart after all. She slithers toward our girl and kisses her on the cheek. I have an idea for the heir to Mama's business. An heir to Mama's business? Yeah, if Mama doesn't first kill us in a fit of rage for infringing on her business. Ellis rolls onto her back and pulls Piper on top. Why don't you stay here and help? Piper's eyes grow to half the size of her face. Yeah! Not necessary, I say. And I don't mean it because I'd rather hit up Natasha. Come on, let's go home. Ellis has each of Piper's arms making her tickle herself. No, Daddy. Girls meeting before Mommy's meeting. First order of business. Tickle party. She wriggles her fingers all over Piper's tummy. I get up off the floor and take a seat on the couch underneath the obnoxiously huge family photo. A scent hits my nose. A familiar one I can't quite place. Piper roars and squeals in laughter and her happiness makes me happy. It really does. But then Ellis rears her head to the side. She glares at me for the billionth time in the past two years. Piper dismounts Ellis and darts over in my direction for a hug. I fall back and the familiar scent grows stronger. Chapter 25. Beckett. Listen to Lex's podcast enough and you'll get the overall theme. The guest who tells you to embrace your agony is no different from the one who brags about making his suffering suffer. The MMA fighter who grew up orphaned will tell you to give your misfortunes a black eye. And Lex's favorite motivational speaker will say with a straight face that everyone belongs everywhere they go. Right. Lex is my misfortune, and my fist belongs on his nose and my size 9 up his ass. The building's in this area. They're made of cardboard, it seems. I hear everything. Ellis yammers about her meeting. Me. Lex pleads with her daughter about sleep and school and no visit from Santa Claus if she doesn't let Mommy focus on work. Me. Right, little girl. Let your poor excuse for a papa take you home so mommy can focus on her most important job. Me. Crouched beneath bushes in their backyard-style area, the scene continues to unfold. And thank God they toned it down because I can't hear another peep of this nonsense. The little girl scribbles her mess in the coloring book, swinging her legs in the air as she bobs her head. Fingers point and arms flail and even I, an unmarried college guy, know that you should never argue in front of kids take that shit outside, but thankfully they don't because I'm here, outside, behind Ellis's office. The bushes itch. They remind me that I'm not made for the outdoors. I lift my elbow to rub it and the point of a thorn breaks through, but Lex is the real thorn in my side. I examine. A small dot of red pulls up, then trickles down my arm. Swiping a finger up my arm and into my mouth, I taste it. Lex's will taste better. A door slams and thank God it's not the one in back. I peek through the window again and the little girl remains oblivious. Oh, to be young again. Ellis walks back to the room and it's clear she won't be having any meeting tonight. A grunt fills the air, followed by a shit. Lex. I scramble about the patio, tagged with the graffiti of Pottery Barn furniture, and trip over a chair. Before the concrete can tattoo my face, I contort my body so I land on my side. My phone buzzes. Ellis. I crouch down. She doesn't see that I see her. Good. With a disappointed look on her face, her lips sag down and she sits on the floor next to her daughter and I know where her heart is. The text reads, Sorry. I reply because gentlemen reply right away. They don't play hard to get. They don't leave women on red. No worries. I type. I follow the text with a thumbs up emoji. An eggplant would be crass even though she craves my eggplant. She sends me a blushing face emoji and grown ass women who use blushing face emojis are the best. I scurry across the backyard and I'm sure anyone who sees me will have me mistaken for an intruder. Standing up, I peek through the slit of the gate. Lex's head faces down and he better not be texting my mom. Or worse. Sexting. Sad that I must share the same moon with this pig. I shove my hand in the pocket of my hoodie, and you know you haven't worn something in a while when you stumble across a random artifact from years past. A blue surgical mask nestles itself into my hands, and finally it'll be of actual use. It'll help me protect others Lex's family and my mom. I spread it over my face and lop the band behind my ears. The top part tickles the bridge of my nose. But better to cover it so I don't have to breathe in Lex's miserable existence. He remains focused on his phone, and he's obviously never taken the advice of his guests, the spec ops guys and self-defense experts. Situational awareness is everything, yet he has none because he'd rather have his eyes glued to his phone. He looks at it the same way he looked at my mom the day I met him. And now I know my mom is on the opposite end of that exchange. She wouldn't approve of my behavior tonight and she would definitely not approve of my clenched fist on her boyfriend's face. Sometimes, mother doesn't know best. Lex, this clueless oaf. He grins as he taps his phone. He turns to get into his car. He stops again to answer his phone and my mom is really bad for his health. Whatever she sent him has him giggling and that has my gag reflex working overdrive. He shoves his phone back in his pocket and lifts his arm to open his midlife crisis mobile. I chop it down. I adhere to something one of Lex's guests referred to as the non-aggression principle. Don't start shit and there won't be shit, basically. Don't strike unless stricken first. And if that happens, then strike back with unrelenting force so the aggressor doesn't offer a second blow. One night, my friends and I were at our neighbor's house. Her name is Lacey. Lacey's dad had one of those Nordic things that suburban dads use for two weeks then give up on life and start hanging clothes on it. Lacey's brother, I can't remember his name, but he was swole. He could bench press five of me with one arm. A couple of guys who may have broken into their parents' liquor stash challenged him to a bench pressing contest. One look at the kid and you'd know why Lacey asked them to stop. Not being the kind of guy to back down from a challenge, he accepted. The drunken lightweights could barely press 70. Lacey's brother, a freshman at the time, benched twice the weight and 20 times. Perhaps I should have refrained from laughing, but these buffoons asked to be humiliated. One of them poked a finger in the kid's chest. Lacey wedged herself between the two and the asshole shoved her out of the way. I never claimed to be their big brother, but Lacey and that kid whose name I can't remember, we were like family. Which explains why I never hit on her despite her hotness. Seeing her cry in a fit of rage put me in a fit of rage. One heel palm strike to the nose had the garage cheering. And the asshole went home crying. That was the first time I violated the non-aggression principle. But that asshole had it coming. Just like Lex. The past 13 years of his life have been a violation. So I must violate the principle again. We all violate our principles, and anyone who says they don't is often the biggest violator. I haven't delivered a heel-palm strike since that day. The day I came to the defense of Lacey and her brother whose name I can't remember. Lex groans as his keys crash to the ground. And I'm the key, unlocking a new future for my mom and me. For Ellis and her girls. The heel of my palm strikes Lex right square in the chin. The thud sounds more beautiful than Lana Del Rey singing about Norman fucking Rockwell while Ellis suffocates me with her honeypot. Lex falls back and his head ricochets off the rearview mirror of his middle-aged crisis mobile. His carcass crashes to the ground and his phone sounds off again. Leave him alone, Mom. I mount him and I've never mounted a jackass before. My fist introduces itself to his left eye, and then his right eye, and my vision for Lex has never been clearer. He reaches a hand for my face and I swat it down. He grunts and spits out blood. So dramatic. I wrap my hand around his throat. Perfect fit. With a free hand, I reach around and take his phone out of his jeans. You can have it, he grumbles. And he whines about a hundred-dollar bill in the armrest of his middle-aged crisis mobile. I tell him to shut up, and he does, good boy. But his phone won't shut the fuck up, and I tell him to give me the password to unlock it. Zero two. He mutters as a shiny red streak drizzles down the side of his mouth. Twenty-two, February twenty-second. Mom's birthday. Chapter 26 Lex About thirty years ago, I played high school football. One blistering September afternoon, coach finally let me play. Weeks of riding the pine led to my golden opportunity. A spot on the dummy squad, also known as anyone not on varsity, I lined up for the punting unit. After the snap, I ran as fast as my pudgy body would allow. What I didn't see was the school star player barreling toward me. A pop to the side of my head turned the blue sky and green grass to a white screen of nothing. The sound of my coach yelling for me to get my pansy ass up broke me out of my gridiron-induced coma. The same white screen appears once again as my head bounces off the driveway to Ellis's office. The weight of a body holds me to the ground and I can't tell if this asshole wants my car, my wallet, my life, or all of the above. A cool, wet streak oozes down my cheek and I can't see a fucking thing. The voice belonging to this random thug, it whispers, Asshole. I've been called worse. My cheek absorbs another blow and my jaw cracks. Did I just swallow a tooth? The punk pats me down. His hands worm their way up and down my pants and in and out of my pockets. He slaps my face and I laugh. All I can do is laugh. My vision begins to come back. The figure on top of me is a kaleidoscope. A four-legged monster silhouetted under the streetlight. My head throbs with the pressure of Dwayne the Rock Johnson playing the bongos on it. A hand pinches my busted lips the way a long-lost aunt would. The weight of this jackass sucks the wind out of me. I cough and it hurts my head. This damn devil. He tells me how lucky I am that he spared my life. I cough again and my head throbs harder. The copper-like flavor of blood overwhelms my mouth. Oh, I'm so lucky, I rasp. He says to fuck off, and that's definitely my cell phone he hit me with. The spinning kaleidoscope of a criminal disappears, fades to a screen of whiteness again. Take the car, I say. Come on, man, I have a wife and kids. The rat dismounts me, and I can finally breathe again. A foot rams into my side and I think I'm dying tonight, the lowlife whispers and he sounds like someone I know. He mutters, that's rich. My vision returns, my head still pounds with the force of the Incredible Hulk knocking on a door. He hoists a knee in the air and grunts as he stomps down on my stomach. The world spins the way it does after a few shots of tequila and this ass kicking will leave me hungover for the next few weeks, possibly months. One would think Ellis would have heard the beatdown by now, but given our icy relations, she'd likely cheer for the asshat to finish me off. As I roll over, cool lines of liquid stream down my face. Come on, dude, I have a family, I say as I sputter blood, and this must be what it's like to lose in the UFC octagon. The shadowy villain has yet to toe-tag me. He stands and towers over my broken body. An arm rises in the air, and I think he's got my smartphone in it. With a mocking tone at least five octaves higher than my voice, he says, Please, bro. Please, I have kids. He rams the phone into my chest, and I'm glad it's not a knife. People are so weird, the hooded scumbag says. You only really start to care about your family when faced with certain death. Lie. He says, people like me don't deserve mercy, which is precisely why he plans to grant me mercy, and seriously, Houston, nobody sees or hears this guy? He backhands me again, and I see white again, but I'd much rather be on that high school football field. What do you want? I ask. He tells me he wants the universe to return to its natural order, whatever the fuck that means. says he wants to make me learn, but I have no idea what he plans to teach me. The future Harris County inmate raises a clenched fist. His body is outlined by the huge full moon in the night sky. I fear that one more punch will send me into the next century, or six feet under. My head stops throbbing. The shadowy figure's outline gets clearer. I grab a fistful of hoodie and he bats it down. His fingers wrap around my neck and now I'm dying the death of a D-list actor in an indie cop movie. He lands another fist on my face and blood shoots upward, dotting my view of the moon with a shadowy geyser. Watch your back. I don't even know who you are, I say. He says I will and he disappears into the night. From a distance, Ellis shouts, What the hell are you doing out here and why are you on the ground? My ribs and battered face keep me from giving an answer at an acceptable level. A tiny figure walks out after Ellis. Daddy, says Piper. What are you doing? Searching for Santa, I say, wincing. Just want to see if he's out early. Lie. Ellis' mouth drops open and thank God that's a sign she doesn't plan to finish the job. She points a finger in the direction of her office, commanding Piper to go inside. I'm told we should call the cops. Report the bad guy. Have them smoked out and locked up for doing this. She paces about as Piper heads back inside to color. Terrible idea, I say as I massage my pulsing head. We'll end up here for at least another couple hours. Piper has school in the morning and you... I pause because a pain shoots from one side of my head to the other. You have that meeting, remember? Ellis stops pacing. She lifts a thumb to her mouth and starts biting her nail. Don't worry, Ellis. I'll be out of here. She locks eyes on me, then homes in on the front door to her office. Piper gets that, someone's watching me, feeling, and looks at her mom. Here, says Piper, ripping out a sheet of paper from the coloring book and offering it to Ellis. She waves the flimsy page about, waiting impatiently for Ellis to claim her masterpiece. Thank you, sweet little angel, says Ellis in a pandering voice. Piper's not allowed anywhere in her mom's office besides the living area and bathroom. The piece of paper, scrawled with the TLC of a seven-year-old's best effort, will suffer the doom of 99% of all colored pages. The Garbage I inhale a deep breath and immediately regret it because my ribs are broken and that familiar scent hits me again. Ellis remains focused on Piper, but her eyes widen. She asks if I'm okay and she sounds suspicious, but it's probably just my paranoia. There's no way in hell she's having an affair because her other man is her business. My phone sounds off again, and she demands I answer it. I refuse. Sorry, trying to recover from an ass-kicking? Ellis snarls. For someone always bitching about my late hours, you sure do get a lot of late-night texts. Her thinly-veiled accusation doesn't deserve a response. Not when the scent of another dude's cologne lingers all around me. Who does it belong to? Speaking of late nights, when does your meeting start? I snap my fingers and summon Piper. Let's go, honey. No! Piper screeches. Her lower lip stretches out and I remind her about pouting and crying in Santa. It works for about two seconds. She attempts to bargain with me and the last thing I want to do after a beatdown is negotiate with a kid. One more page. Ellis glares at me. The sound of my phone makes her face contort like someone put her in a room full of spoiled milk. Aren't we popular tonight? I shrug. Too bad that popularity can't rake in enough ad revenue to cover our house note. And she wonders why we don't get along, why we haven't gotten along for the past few years. Too bad your top dollar clients can't buy you a heart, I say. I snap my fingers. Piper, time to go home. Piper slams her crayon on the floor and lunges at Ellis. I love you, Mommy. I love you too, Pipey Pants, replies Ellis, and this has to be the first time in years I've heard Ellis use the word love. The phone in my pocket. It sounds again and Ellis suggests I answer it and for once I honor and obey. It's Natasha. We never agreed on a place for lunch, so let me suggest my house. Dessert's easier to access from here anyway. I can't tell, but smile, but Alice's eyes rip through my chest. I glare back at her and she breaks eye contact, shifting her focus on the crayons splayed across the doorway to her office. My thumbs pound the smartphone that asshole used to beat me. I'll be there. I add a smiley face emoji for good measure and I'll never be too old for smiley face emojis because there's no side piece makes me happier than my wife does because my wife's a bitch emoji. Which one of your sponsors is texting you at? Ellis looks at her watch. Let me check my Rolex. Ah, yes. Nine o'clock at night? She kisses Piper on the cheek and sends her in my direction. My head stops throbbing long enough for me to muster up the balls to say what I've been wanting to say since the mail sent hit me in the nose harder than the thug in the driveway. The one who wears the same cologne as whoever was in your office this evening? mommy says piper what's cologne kids they sure know how to lighten the mood chapter 27 beckett thinking about last night has me wanting to kick my own ass as avery and i stroll through campus my focus remains on what didn't go right my date with Ellis and the lack of testicular fortitude that kept me from sending mom a text from Lex's phone. Or maybe it was the love of a mother's boy that prevented it. Who knows? Avery yammers about poli and democracy and tyranny and human nature. Her arms flail and I nod in agreement even though I'm only halfway listening. A long sigh interrupts her diatribe and we stop walking. Hey, she says with a hint of motherly concern. You all right? No, because in a perfect world, your dad and your sister wouldn't have crashed my party with your mom, and I would have beaten your dad a little worse, and I would have sent a breakup text from his phone when I had the chance, but I know when not to say the quiet part out loud. I grin. Late night last night, and I couldn't sleep, and my mom woke me up early to ask me why I got home so late, and you know how parents are. We get to a tree in front of the library, and I hold an arm out, inviting her to take a seat underneath. She accepts my invite, and the autumn H-Town wind blows her hair across her face. Birds chirp above us, and for once in my life, I'd love for one of them to shit on me. I could use some good luck right about now. Avery tells me she's glad she's not the only one who had a long night. Want to talk about it? I ask, because I need to survey the damage I caused. Her eyes drift away. Leaves rustle around, breaking the silence that surrounds us. Squirrel, she says. Cute, I say, and squirrels are far from cute. They're rodents, menacing little heathens that throw acorns at people from high atop their arbor castles and command birds to shit on people's cars. Look at his little teeth, she says. Her face beams and it reminds me of the way Alice's face beamed last night. Avery digs into her backpack and pulls out a granola bar. She says it's always good to keep an extra one in case she encounters a hungry squirrel, bird, or bum. Bum. I didn't realize we were talking about your dad. Uh, I think you mean homeless person? I say. She shrugs and I dismiss her dismissiveness. Look at him, she says, slapping her knees. He's going to town. Get it, little guy, get it. Like I almost did with your mom and like my fists did with your dad. I offer an obligatory laugh. Some floppy haired dude with freckles and a hoodie that reads, Kill him with kindness approaches. His eyebrows narrow and he tells Avery to stop feeding the squirrel. That feeding them can make them lose their fear of people and they'll expect food and can get hostile if they don't get what they want. Then he crosses his arms and taps his feet. His lecture makes me want to play connect the dots with his freckles in my size nine. Relax, I say, waving a hand in the air. It's just a granola bar, squirrel whisperer. Avery rolls her eyes at the goof and breaks off another piece in defiance. She tosses it at the squirrel. Squirrel Whisperer scoffs and stomps away. Probably to call PETA. So, I say, and I clear my throat. Want to talk about last night? She holds my gaze the same way Ellis held my gaze last night. I wish we met under different circumstances. Her eyes are kind. They invite me in. They want this afternoon to last for days, weeks, months, years. They want us to create nicknames for each other. She could be A-Rock and I can be the Beckaminator. We can have our own dialects and secret phrases that nobody can decipher. Not even the world-famous hackers her dad invites on his podcast. She scoops her knees to her chest and lowers her head beneath them. A growl emanates from her crumpled body. I barely know her, but I move in. I place a hand on her back. Gently, because I don't want her to think I'm hitting on her. Although, if she's anything like her mom, she'll interpret my gesture as a green light to mount me right here and drown me in a pool of toxic femininity. She releases her knees and sets her hands on the grass. Pulling her legs under her butt, she grins another worried grin. My phone rings in my pocket, and I don't answer it. Well, Avery mutters, and it's about time she says something. My parents... Your parents? She gulps and continues. My parents had an argument last night. Understatement. Sorry to hear about that. Not really. The floodgates open and she tells me everything I want to hear. Her parents have all but admitted they need a divorce. Her mom works way too much and her dad's podcast is good, but they measure everything by money, so it's not really good. They almost never see Piper and they think that spoiling her with gadgets and toys can make up for their absence. She adjusts herself and her life could use an adjustment, compliments of me. That's rough, I reply. Not rough enough. Dad never helps around the house and neither does Mom. We have this huge-ass house and it's like a classy garbage dumpster. She scoots closer to me, as if she's about to divulge a secret. I lean in closer as well. She says she thinks her parents are cheating on each other. Duh. Oh well, she says. Could be worse. At least I have parents. Yeah, I say. And at least she has a dad, even though he's a pig. She shifts her attention to my hand. What happened? I home in on the squirrel gorging down on the granola bar and his teeth remind me of the teeth I knocked out of Lex's mouth. Punching bag. It's not a complete lie. She breaks off another piece of granola for the squirrel. Any more and he'll end up on my 600-pound squirrel life. You trying to put him in a food coma? She coos. A dimple exposes itself, and I shouldn't let it attract me, but it does. He's hungry, she replies with the second syllable drawn out to emphasize the importance of feeding this little menace. It scoops the piece off the ground and dashes off. So she says, crumpling the foil paper and stuffing it in her backpack. You box? No, not professionally. But I know how to kick some ass. Just ask your father. I hold up a fist, opening and closing it. I continue, good exercise, you know. She nods and tells me about the two years of kickboxing class she took when she was a kid. Her Sifu made her mom angry when he called the boys in her class ladies and told them they hit like girls. Huh, my football coach used to do the same thing and I always found it weird because my mom whipped me pretty hard. Toxic masculinity, she replies. No such thing, but I stay quiet. I nod and chuckle and her eyes gleam in a way that makes me forget about her parents. I want to live inside those eyes, but not now. So, she tells me one morning to pick the biggest boy in class to be my sparring partner and punch him in the stomach with all my strength. And? She bites down on her lower lip and looks up at the sky. I followed my mom's orders and the boys made fun of him for over a month. His parents bitched out my parents. All because of your mom's toxic femininity. She gasps a half-shocked gasp and picking fights with her will be fun. Her body leans back as her mouth stays parted open. Toxic femininity? I think not, she sasses. She play-slaps my leg and her hand remains a split second longer than the average play-slap. Millimeter by millimeter, her fingers slide off and she's putty in my hands. She's feisty and wants more and I will give her as much as I want because I need to stay in control and maybe my masculinity is toxic. If I may, I mutter. Her dimple reappears. Dimples are actually a weakness, but hers makes me weak but I have to remain focused. So I look at her forehead. Enlighten me, she says. You're not ready for enlightenment. Just like she's not ready to be enlightened about her parents, her dad, and my dad, her dad and my mom, her mom and me. Try me. You women love to trash men because... I stopped to make air quotes. We're everything that's wrong with this world. Her eyes narrow, and she leans back on her elbow. Well? Her well sounds like a well that agrees. Well, I say. Who gave birth to us men? Who raised boys while men went off to fight wars to protect our lands? She groans and tells me to tell her something she's never heard. You all act as if no woman has ever heard a single soul You rage about tyrannical men but conveniently omit darlings like Queen Elizabeth of Russia who used to tear out nostrils, or Helen of Troy starting a whole-ass war because she couldn't keep her legs closed, or Countess Elizabeth Bathory terrorizing people long before the Son of Sam and Jack the Ripper. But we live in the 21st century, buster, she retorts, and some of the most powerful people in the world, the ones who run central banks and Fortune 500 companies... Those people are, wait for it, women. Her eyes widen, and I may have overplayed my hand, but I don't care because I shouldn't get too attached anyway. Whatever, she says, and whatever is the typical response someone gives when they can't come up with a compelling rebuttal. So we have garbage monetary policy and garbage corporations that lobby politicians and lord over us by proxy and women run more than just a few of these institutions and somehow we can't blame them because they're women? I shrug my shoulders and look away. She laughs and play slaps me again. You dare raise your voice in the presence of a young lady? Sorry, I say, and I am. I tend to get worked up when somebody challenges me to say the quiet part out loud. She lifts herself up, coiling her knees back to her chest. Her eyes close and she purses her lips, but not in a way that would make her want to kiss me. I nudge her with my knee and she opens her eyes. The grin returns. You and my dad would totally get along, she says. Your dad is the reason my dad is dead and he's having an affair with my mom. Really? I reply. Yeah, you like podcasts? You mean two-hour-long rants by wannabe broadcasters who think they've got something to say just because they can buy a cheap mic and have an internet connection and a YouTube channel with a couple thousand subscribers? Now I know you'd like my dad. I hate your dad. I play dumb. Does he have a podcast? His name is Lex Griffin, host of The Lex Griffin Show. I fake a shocked response. Get out! She nods and tells me about all his guests and people he talks to that I already know about. All the writers, authors, and screenwriters. The editors of national magazines like Esquire and retired Navy SEALs. "'Are you a frog or a velociraptor?' I ask, repeating the question one of his SEAL guests once posed. "'Wanna meet him?' "'I already have, and he's met my fist.' "'You asking me on a date?' "'Maybe,' she says." And now I have to break up my mom and Lex because I can't have this turn into one of those weird step-sibling things. Chapter 28. Beckett. Someone should write a book about navigating the awkwardness of a situation involving dinner with your date's father who's also having an affair with your mom. We sit in the lobby of Cyclone anayas, and the heavenly aroma of grilled meat tickles my nose. You'll love him says Avery in an unconvincing tone. I won't. I feel like I know him already, I say. True story. I know him in more ways than one. Holding out my palm, I say, but don't worry, I won't fangirl. She kicks my sneaker and winks. You don't seem like the type who would fangirl over anyone. I'm not, but I've done my research, so I play along. I'm not with the exception of Shawn Mendes and Lana Del Rey. Her eyes tell me I'm a man after her heart. The sun peeks through the window of the lobby and illuminates her face. She squints her eyes with a dash of pessimism. I salute. Bet you didn't know you'd be talking to a lieutenant colonel in the Mendez Army. So you're telling me... When does your dad get here? Any minute, and don't change the subject on me, mister. She smiles a smile that reminds me of her mom at Neemfa's and all I can think of is that night after Neemfa's and she starts to interrogate me. Did I know about Sean Mendez's allergy? How did he learn to play the guitar? How fast did his EP hit number one? I snicker. I said I'm a lieutenant colonel, not some wannabe. Avery smirks. Prove it. She taps her manicured toes and now it's a full-blown investigation. A Spanish inquisition of sorts. Blah, 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 I reply. Everyone knows about his mosquito allergy and that he taught himself how to play the guitar on YouTube and that his EP hit number one on the iTunes chart in 31 minutes. Impressive. She crosses her legs and we enjoy a moment of silence. The host asks if we'd like to sit at the bar and we decline. You should consider upping your game, I quip. Think so? She uses the same tone of voice as her mom and it haunts me and excites me all at once. I tell her I'm disappointed that she didn't ask me about the Soundwave tattoo of his family saying, I love you. Or that strange black sheer shirt he wore when he accompanied Camila Cabello to the premiere of Cinderella. She rears her head back. Please don't call my bluff. Please don't call my bluff. Please don't call my bluff. Please accept my most humble apology for questioning your knowledge, Lieutenant Colonel. She says with a thumbs up, and I breathe a sigh of relief. Thank you, Google, for providing the world with random shitlets of useless pop culture factoids. Apology accepted, I say. The door swings open, inviting a light wind gust inside. And him. Hey, Dad, says Avery, and jealousy shoots through my veins because I'll never get to introduce a date to my dead father. We have yet to lock eyes, so I turn my head for a fake cough, an ill-advised move in a post-COVID world, but I can't find any shits to give about people's feelings in a post-COVID world. Avy Bear, says Lex in his most pandering dad voice. My dad had a better nickname for me, B-Rock, because he begrudgingly agreed to name me Beckett, according to my mom. And I can see why because I'm a Latino guy with the most sexless waspy name ever given to a Latino guy. Sorry I'm late, he says. I turn to greet him and his face looks like a Salvador Dali painting. Seeing his bruised, swollen eyes and cheeks and forehead makes my sore fists worth it. He smiles back, revealing a missing tooth. The gap between his two front teeth tempts my fist, but I resist. I'm civilized. Avery wraps an arm around his waist and he winces. Sorry, she says. He waves her off and nods as the host escorts us to the dining room. Usual spot, Mr. Griffin, he asks. Sure thing, Connor, replies Lex, and only a couple of assholes would doom their kid to a lifetime of mockery by naming their son Connor, which explains the sleeve tattoos, long hair, nose ring, and lip ring. Well played, Connor. Avery glances my way. Someone tried to carjack my dad, in case you're wondering. Interesting narrative. It's nothing, Lex says as we take our seats. His eyes shudder as he sits, and you have no idea how much power you truly have until you see the after effects of what happened to the guy whose ass you kicked. Our waiter's broken English interrupts my moment. Lex and Avery know what they want without looking at the menu. Beef fajitas for two, extra onions. I order enchiladas. They laugh. Lex's is slightly broken thanks to my fists, and if he keeps it up, I'll have to treat him again. A long time ago, I might have been about maybe 10 or 11, says Avery, wiping a tear from her eye, and I see nothing funny about a Mexican ordering enchiladas at a Mexican restaurant. She continues. We had dinner with our neighbors and their son. His name is Jack. I bet you'd like him. She bellows and has to take a sip of water, and Lex hasn't stopped staring at me since we got to the table. He ordered enchiladas, but he pronounced it enchiladas. We all laugh, and Lex stops before us because it hurts for him to laugh at their silly inside joke. Way to go, B-Rock. Lex asks how we met, and I wish we could talk about how he and I met instead. We talk about school and poli-sci and how different college is now compared to the 90s. We laugh about Avery's first semester at Minnesota University and how she lived on campus for one semester before moving back home with her parents. I tell her she's not the only one, and she's not. I went to Sam Houston State for a year and then moved back home. Avery dips a chip and swirls it in a bowl of salsa. I couldn't bear the thought of my mom being alone, I say. What about your dad? Avery asks. Yeah, Lex. What about my dad? Lex turns away because cowards do that kind of thing. I slouch back in my chair. He was taken from me and my mom. My arms heat up. My heart pounds so fast it might break through my chest and knock Lex into next year. Sorry to hear about that, says Avery. The loss of a parent at a young age is pretty terrible, says Captain Obvious, a.k.a. Lex, a.k.a. the bane of my existence. I can't imagine what that's like. I changed the subject. I'm alright, but I want to know if they caught the guy who tried to take your car. Lex inhales a deep breath and groans because of my handiwork. He shakes his head. With a mouthful of chips and queso, I love Avery's lack of table etiquette, she says no and proceeds to lecture her dad about not filing a police report. Oh man, I say. I would have called 911. It's over, he says. It's over when I say it's over, actually. I'm alive and I'm just thankful that my wife and younger daughter didn't get hurt. You mean the wife you're cheating on and the kid you consistently blow off to be with my mom? True, I say, and I mean it. Lex's phone chimes and it better not be mom on the other end. His eyes shift toward it, then back at me. He reaches for another chip. So, Avi Bear, Lex says, and this thing with adding Bear to his family's names is so patronizing. Hope you don't mind, but I invited somebody to join us. Bad enough she had to invite you. Avery cocks her head back. With a tone of voice that half suggests she's been anticipating this part of the conversation, she replies, Okay? Lex wipes a straight drop of queso from his chin with his thumb. Avery Bear obviously gets her manners from him. He smiles a smile that begs me to serve him my size 9 boot for dessert. I figured since we are in the area, I'd invite Jack. Avery huffs a year-long huff, the kind that wants her dad to stop playing Tinder. I lean back and take a swig of water. Maybe I can share my enchiladas with him. Avery ignores me and so does Lex, as if I'm the one who put a damper on the evening. Teflon Lex always seems to avoid repercussions. I would never have invited you had I known you'd invite him, says Avery with a glance in my direction. And yes, Avery Bear, tear into him with the rage of a 700-pound grizzly. Rip that pathetic look off his face. Lex's shoulders droop. I thought... Avery slams her soda on the table and stops him. And I'd never treat my dad like this if the roles were reversed. You think too much, she says. He's cool, but you need to stop inviting him to every one of our family outings. Our food arrives. Plumes of smoke shoot into the air, fogging my view of the Lex vs. Avery main event. Lex's phone won't shut up and Mom needs to leave him the hell alone. But at least I know I'm not the only one she scolds if a text message doesn't get answered within two seconds. Flex's eyes shoot down at the phone. He picks it up and Avery rolls her eyes. A nervous grin streaks across his face as he looks at me. He knows I know that Mom waits for him on the other side. Something behind me catches his attention. Flapping his napkin on the table, he bobs his head toward the exit and stands up. Oh, just in time, declares Lex. Avery's eyes take up half her face and I have a feeling things will get awkward. The blue gems in her sockets send me a distress signal. They want me to rescue her. She's not a grizzly after all. The three of you can hold things down while I take this call, says Lex as he saunters away from the table. I should follow him outside, snatch his phone, and stop it into pieces after shoving it into his mouth. But I resist. I'm civilized. Sure thing, Mr. G, says a deep voice from behind. Avery slams an elbow on the table. She lays her chin atop the palm of her hand. I want to hold her chin in my hand and tell her to lighten up. Hi, Jack, she mumbles. Hey, says the deep voice. A hand smacks my shoulder and I'm ready to retaliate. I flinch to the side. Jack holds his hands up. Sorry, bro, he says. No apologies necessary, I reply. Guess I have a problem with people I don't know touching me. I respect that, he says. Grab a seat, I offer waving a hand to the chair next to me. He accepts, and Avery's nostrils flare. I look back for Lex. He stands at the hostess booth, smiling. My phone vibrates. Excuse me, I say. Probably my mom. Avery and Jack sit in an abyss of awkward silence. Mom wants to know what I'm doing and who I'm with. Since we should never lie to our mother as I type, Dinner with Lex. Chapter 29. Lex. After all these years, I still can't tell if Jack uses Avery to get access to me or if he uses me to get to Avery. Jack's built like a pro linebacker, with shoulders the size of a basketball and hands that could palm my head with little to no effort. But under the deep voice and menacing presence, he's harmless. He works hard and our families get along. I call him for help when I need someone to work my audio and video feeds. And even though he and Avery dated for a couple of months after they graduated high school, it appears they broke things off amicably. Yet he doesn't come around as much as he used to. I guess that explains why Avery threw me the side eye. But he's here now and she can't do anything about it. I use the distraction to scan my phone. My thumbs can't swipe fast enough. All of the messages are from Natasha. The first one says, Hey. The next one says, I miss you already. Get better. I glance at the table. Avery stares up at the ceiling as Jack's arms wave around, an obvious sign he's telling one of his overhyped stories. Beckett's back remains toward me. He sits still, probably bored to death by Jack. If I'm lucky, maybe he's so bored he'll leave. And on the way out, he'll offer me a ride to his mom's place and give us the highly coveted green light she and I have waited weeks to get. I can be stepdad material. As I send the obligatory Miss You Too text, Natasha sends me another one. Are you with Beckett? Shit. I look at our table. Jack is almost out of his seat with excitement, leaning in toward Beckett. Avery slouches back and shifts her attention to the TV. Beckett slides his chair away from Jack, but he moves in closer. I can always count on Jack to make things awkward. Hopefully he'll ramp up his game and drive Beckett away from my daughter. Can't have them involved in some sort of weird step-sibling romance. Keep going, Jack keep going. His signature laugh overpowers the ruckus Wednesday night crowded Cyclones and I can hear it from the lobby. He's the gift that keeps on giving. I look down at my phone. Another message from Natasha demands to know where I am and who does she think she is? My wife? Ellis would have reached through the screen of my phone and strangled me and finished the job by piercing my jugular and drinking my blood. But not Natasha, which is why she deserves to know the truth. I type... Meeting with Avery's date for dinner and plot twist. Beckett is Avery's date. The seconds crawl as I wait for a reply. I fear my emotions will betray me so I walk outside. Peering into the window of the restaurant, all seems well. Jack's arms continue to flop about and now he has Beckett engaged. But where did Avery go? My phone sounds off again. Natasha, she says Beckett says everything's a OK but I've been a parent long enough to know that kids say everything's okay so they don't have to talk to their parents. I pace about the sidewalk in front of the restaurant as I ponder what to write in my next text. Another glance into the restaurant shows Avery hasn't returned to our table. A tap on my shoulder reveals she's right behind me. With bulged eyes and rosy cheeks, she sneers. She wants to know if it's a potential date for my stupid podcast or my mistress. Chapter 30 Beckett. Somebody should give me a medal for enduring the last hour and a half. A blue ribbon would suffice, but at the end of the day, the ultimate award awaits. Lex's downfall. And it can't come soon enough. In my short encounter with him, Jack seems to be the kind of guy I could vibe with. In another life. Lucky for him, he got the hint that Avery wasn't in the mood for fuckery, so he bailed. The huffs and puffs, the snarls and sneers, all have led me to this moment. Avery growls and grunts, Jack's not-so-woody banter, and Lex's presence have pushed me to speed things up to the next level. My phone buzzes as I sit in the parking lot of Cyclones. Mom wants to know if I can stop by the store on the way home. She ran out of cotton balls and makeup remover. Hope she doesn't need it right away because Lex and I have post-dinner plans. I reply, sure. Might not be back until after ten. Studying for an exam tonight. She gives me a thumbs up emoji. I'll interpret that as approval for my plans for Lex. Tensions between Lex and his precious Avy bear have spilled out into the parking lot. It makes me jealous because I don't have a dad to argue with. I slouch back in my seat and watch Avery tear into Lex. Her arms flap in all directions and the distance between us makes her sound like an angry Charlie Brown teacher. Lex's head remains down. His arm wraps around his torso. Playing victim ain't gonna make her go easy on you, Lexi. Pooh. Avery points a finger in the direction of his phone and stabs the air. She storms off, leaving Lex in a trail of anger and heads toward her car. He stands there, shoulders drooped, deflated. Good. He adjusts his ball cap and his punchable head and starts walking in my direction. I slouch further into my seat, as if the lighting in the parking lot won't rat me out. He stops. His lips form a circle as he reaches into his back pocket. His posture changes as he fishes out his smartphone. I should have stolen it when I had the chance. Of all the women in the world, he has to have an affair with my mom. The blue light of his phone illuminates his battered face. His cap blocks his eyes, but his grin tells me everything I need to know. That ain't Ellis on the other end. The car next to me beeps. Shit. An older couple brushes past him. The lady looks like she's issued her fair share of complaints about the help. She clutches her husband's arms as they walk past Lex. Get over yourself, woman. In this bougie-ass part of town, anyone wearing a black eye, thank you, me, a bandage over the bridge of their nose, thank you, me, and a scuffed-up face, thank you, me, is cause for concern. A potential menace to society. Someone who'd mug you before you can even think about calling 911. Lex ignores them. I see his sausage fingers going to town and it makes me want to break them off and feed them to a pack of feral hogs. The car alarm next to me gives off two more beeps. It's the old couple's car. The man feels my presence because he turns around. Leaning down, he peers into my car. I nod my head and give him a salute because I don't have a Werther's Original to offer him and his wife. He shakes his head slowly, the way he'd shake his head if I rode a bike on his freshly manicured lawn before yelling at me to get off of it. With trembling lips, he raises a hand and knocks on my window. This guy has brass balls for a 270-year-old. You're interrupting my moment with Lex, Grandpa. I crack my window. I lie. Just waiting to pick up my sister from her shift. Not that I owe you any kind of explanation. Lex paces up and down the sidewalk, oblivious to his surroundings, and if it weren't for old man Rivers breathing onion breath into my car, I'd be able to treat him to another beatdown. My wife noticed you sleeping in your car and wanted me to see if you need some help, says the concerned citizen. I'd love to manipulate the Donald Sutherland-looking man in my midst and tell him I fell into hard times, that I have no choice but to live in my car until I can get back on my feet. I'd love to let him and his wife rescue me and slip me a couple hundred bucks to give them this chance to be heroes in a lowly brown boy's story. But I don't like manipulating people. Not my style. All good here, sir, I say. I sit up so his wife can see me. Giving her an A-OK sign, I mouth the words, Thank you. Careful, son, says the old fart. Crime is terrible in this city. He wipes an arm past his waist to reveal a gun. God, I fucking love Texas. I should ask if I can borrow it to pistol whip Lex into a coma. But why drag an innocent old couple into the mix? I steal a glance in Lex's direction. The old man, too. Lex fidgets with his front pocket. A beep sounds from several cars away and Grandpa needs to leave. Have a good night, sir, I say. Nobody ever says sir anymore. Good to know some people still have manners, says the old man, turning to get into his car. Lex gives his ribs a rub and I look forward to giving them another series of good swift kicks. He sets out to his middle-aged crisis mobile. My phone buzzes again. Plot twist. Ellis. She wants to know what I'm doing. I should reply back and let her know I'm working on an end to her sham of a marriage. But I don't. I leave her on red because women of any age, just like men, love the thrill of the hunt. She's a cougar after all. The lights to Lex's car flick on and he revs his engine. Why do old fuckers in expensive cars and motorcycles feel the need to let everyone know they're overcompensating? He takes off and I wait a few seconds before following him. My phone buzzes again and Ellis' name pops up on the screen in my dashboard. I tap it the way I'd like to tap her. Carefully. Siri reads me Ellis' message. We never finished that project and I need your help at the office. You available tonight? Siri asks me if I want to respond and of course I do. I say, no. I should have had Siri tell her I'm busy following her husband home so I can beat his ass again. But I don't. Lex drives like shit, weaving in and out of traffic. No turn signal, erratic braking, his little girl would drive better than him if he let her. My 10-year-old V-dub can hold its own against any other ride, but keeping up with Lex's overpriced sports car without blowing my cover is becoming a pain in my ass. But I persist, making sure to keep back a few cars' distance. We get to a red light and my phone chimes again. Ellis. I tap the screen and Siri reads me the message. Ellis wants to know why I won't answer, and come on, woman, the last thing I need is another mom trying to control me. But I need her in this game against Lex, so I offer a reply. I tell Siri to tell her I had a late dinner and need to study. Plus, I'm on the road and need to focus. The light turns green. The tires to Lex's car peel out, burning rubber on the street. What I wouldn't give to see HPD pull him over, tase him, and slam him on the hood of their squad car. But then I get a visual of anti-police rallies in favor of Lex and swaths of people demanding justice for this innocent man getting brutalized by cops, and the visual disappears. I need to do this. An erratic turn into his block and I whiz past him, posting up a few houses down in front of a home littered with inflatable Christmas decorations. My dad would have decorated our yard better than these yuppies. Scanning for neighbors outside doing chores, the coast is clear. I pull the hood over my head and lift a cloth mask over my face. It's just me, the lifeless inflatable Christmas characters and the rattling of an occasional bug. A body appears in the window of one of the houses. I turn and offer a wave. They wave back. I get to Griffin HQ, the guiltiest of all their neighbors overdoing it with yard decor. Spiral Christmas trees line the pathway leading to their front door, decorated with an oversized wreath with an elf's head in the middle. Inflatable gnomes stand at attention and reindeer guard the bushes. A giant Santa inside an inflatable snow globe blocks one of the front windows. I sneak around to the driveway. This must be what it's like to be one of the bad guys in Home Alone. A floodlight blasts down on me. Shit. I take cover between the cypress trees along the edge of the driveway waiting for it to click off. I see Lex in his kitchen, standing with both his arms on the counter. His head jerks about as he massages the side of it. He pops a pill into his mouth and chases it down with something in a glass. My phone buzzes. I do a Lex check before looking down. Avery. Sorry about tonight. My dad tries so hard to get me and Jack together. It's obnoxious. Obnoxious. Just like your dad's existence. I reply... All good. And I follow it up with a smiley face emoji. Another message from Avery comes down, and don't these Griffin women want me to help eradicate this cancer from their family? You're way too cool about this, lol. I peek up to make sure I'm still alone. The camera above the entrance to the backyard flashes a small red light, and I want to destroy that red light for trying to ruin my night. I crawl across the driveway to the gate. It's open. (laughs) Ha. What good is it to have an expensive home, expensive car, and a surveillance camera if you can't even close the gate to your backyard? I enter slowly, like a secret agent sent by the government to pick off a high-level target. Their patio furniture matches the patio furniture at Ellis' office, the only consistent pattern of behavior in their dysfunctional lives. I get to the back door. As I lift a hand to the doorknob, something pounds the side of my head. My ear rings and I fall to the ground. This sucks worse than walking in on Lex and my mom because it feels like I'm about to die. A shadowy figure stands above me. I recognize the shape. Sultry. The moon outlines curls on top of a head. The voice, a deeper version of a familiar one, tells Piper to go back to the car. To stay there. A foot rams my side, followed by a heel to the small of my back. I think my kidney just ruptured. How long will it take to get a transplant? And would I get moved up the donor list if I did the world a favor and exposed Lex? The voice commands me to stay still or she'll kill me. I believe her. She shouts, What the hell? It's Avery. Santa doesn't like it when you say what the hell, shouts Piper from the driveway. I told you to leave, Piper. Avery straddles me and I wish she was straddling me in a different way, under far different circumstances. The side of my head pulses and now I know what Lex feels like. Well, hopefully he feels worse. Avery Bear pulls my mask down. Mouth agape, she demands to know what the hell I'm doing in her yard and why she shouldn't call the cops. I don't reply because my whole body aches. She grabs two fistfuls of my hoodie. Answer me. I thought maybe I could visit your dad and see his podcast studio. Her face tightens harder than a 50-something-year-old River Oaks debutante clinging to the final seconds of her youth. She dismounts me and extends a hand. You are certifiably nuts. My dad has, like, seven guns. I know. He talks about guns more than his girls on his podcast. I guess I let the inner fanboy get the best of me, I say. And did she puncture a lung with her foot? She scoffs and offers to get me an ice pack and some water. And since I know my dad wants to get back into my good graces, I'll show you a studio, she says. Crisis averted. For now.